Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee. We have with us our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hi, everybody. And we also have Team Cliff Bar Racing and Trainer Road's Pete Morris. Hello, everybody. Good to have you, Pete. Um, no, happy, happy as the three musketeers today. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that way of putting how we, uh, how we interact. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chad, Chad is D'Artagnan for sure. I don't, know <laughs> I don't know where I would be. Was it, uh, is one of them named Porthos? I believe, uh, uh something yeah, like that's that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Man, I think that you'd be Porthos Pete. I think okay. that he was the, he was the, the, the fun jovial one, you know, yeah, it yeah. kind of brought everyone together. There was one that was too serious. That one might be me. I don't know. It might be Chad too. Who knows? Let us know if you're joining us on YouTube right now, which of the three musketeers each one of us would be. And we're happy to have you on. You can give it a, this video a thumbs up and then that will make it so other people will find it. And if you're listening on the podcast, you can rate this podcast on iTunes and share it with your friends. That is a huge, huge favorite that you could do for us. We greatly appreciate it. You can also listen to the Successful Athletes podcast. We just had an episode this week published with James Dunleap talking about the balance he had with, um, with mental health and with cycling, going through management of, of binge eating disorder. We don't often, we often speak about eating disorders in the context of deprivation, uh, or perhaps binging purging or, or, and bulimia or whatever it may be, but we don't often discuss them in terms of binge eating disorder. Uh, really interesting, uh, discussion that we were able to have with James on how actually endurance sport helped him manage that. Cause oftentimes it can kind of, uh, they can conflict, but he was able to manage it really well and had some great insight and articulated it very well. Uh, the, the whole struggle that he went through and how he has successfully managed it. It was really cool. We also have an episode coming up with, uh, Lauren Hackney, who she was, uh, so she's a medical professional from Ireland and she, she said that she could hardly finish 20 kilometers on a bike. And it was like her worst nightmare. And when she did triathlons, like the bike was terrible. Then COVID hit. Remember she's a medical professional, but then she decided I'm going to take on a full Ironman, uh, so I won't leave anything else uh, up to, uh, I, I won't spoil anything else, but you should listen to that episode because it's fantastic what she did, uh, to prepare for such a big goal amidst all of it. And also there's a much bigger theme around that. And she brings to light a great cause that she's working for it, uh, toward. So I would absolutely recommend listening to that episode. Successful athletes podcast links are down below. Also for adaptive training, you can give it a shot right now. You can try train a road free for seven days. So that's once again, a new thing for us, the free trial. If you've ever considered trying train a road, just give it a shot right now. You can sign up with no obligation, no credit card, and you can start training and start using adaptive training right then and there, which is really cool. It'll automatically be on for you, which is sweet. Uh, adaptive training is in what we call open beta. That's its development phase right now. And over time, uh, we're getting closer and closer to a full production launch, meaning that it will be launched out there, but that doesn't mean that it will be complete. We'll always, just as we do here at trainer road with everything, be constantly improving it. And we have tons of ideas of how to improve it as we move on. Um, but if you want to give adaptive training a try, if you want to give trainer road a try, try it now free for seven days of the free trial and recommend it to your friends. Um, it's good stuff. Pete, you've been working on a project here at trainer road that we haven't talked about. Uh, and I would really like to talk about it. Uh, what, what, so you being a product manager, you have different large tasks that you take on. What has been this one that you've been working on recently? Uh, the most recent one we just, we just released, um, it's in production as of last Wednesday. Um, 
in the workout player or actually in the app entirely, we, we put a lot of uh, effort into making sure our accessibility was up to kind of our standards uh, here at Trainer Road. Um, and it's been something that we've been kind of picking pieces up as, as we built a lot of things along the way, but we finally decided. What to does accessibility down. mean to you? Sorry um, to interrupt Pete, yeah, but yeah, like for that. those that may not know. Yeah, totally. Um, so what there is, is there's all sorts of different athletes in the world that have uh, varying degrees of ways of interacting with our app, whether that's partially sighted or blind athletes or hard of hearing athletes or um, more or less any anything that we can kind of make more robust so that every athlete on the whole spectrum can have the same experience with Trainer Road is what we're trying to do. Um, and that's, that's kind of the easiest way to think about it is if everybody can get on Trainer Road and have the exact same experience and get the same value and get faster the same way. That's what we're trying to uh, make happen. Um, and so we, uh, we started working with a, a group um, out of Atlanta called Paraguide. Um, and they do a lot of really cool um, kind of race-related stuff and training-related things where they, they get athletes out to, do, to doing um, triathlons and 10Ks and, and kind of any, any endeavor they want to do. Um, they help them get there. Uh, and so we We've been fortunate enough to work with them for the last, actually, a long time. We've we've kind of been talking to them over and over, and then finally we got to double down, and and my team um, kind of took the reins on this one. Uh, but it's it was really fun because we got to give them things to test and get feedback really quickly. We had a, a group of super motivated um, athletes who were trying things as we were building them, um, and then as a product manager, it's kind of interesting. I. I'm pretty well versed with most things in cycling, but um, my accessibility news wasn't super strong. So it was cool to learn a bunch about all this and kind of see how everybody interacts um, and what people are trying to get at the end of the day out of Trainer Road. And that that's a cool way to think about um, how we were doing it. So there's a few features we snuck in um, for voiceover and talkback, which is on all mobile devices that uh, we added it to 180 screens. So pretty much everywhere in the app, um, it's been optimized. It's kind of more simple. It's more clear. There's no superfluous information. Um, it's prioritized correctly. So you're actually getting, um, if you're using a screen reader or voiceover on mobile, um, you're going to get the information that you should be getting in the order you should be getting it. And it's going to feel like um, we put, mm. we put it, we actually put a lot of work into making this feel right. And we did a few rounds of feedback and, um, Lots of tweaking, lots of lots of little changes by the end, but it worked out really well. So now that's kind of a whole new experience in the app. Um, and then in the workout player, it was kind of a main um, pain point for a lot of athletes because, uh, as most of you guys know, it's a chart and a and a couple data fields. Um, and getting that uh, getting that information out there um, was something that we we really wanted to do well. And maybe if we could. Um, shoot for the same experience, uh, more or less. And so, uh, if you, uh, if you're in trainer road right now, you can swipe over on the bottom chart. Um, and there's a, a field called interval preview. And so what that does is that reads your upcoming intervals and it'll read the time duration or it will read the energy zone, the time duration, the wattage target, and kind of, if it's a cool down or a warm up or regular work interval, um, and it'll read the next four at all times. Um, and so if you have voiceover enabled, that kind of gives them the, <clears throat> the plan of attack for what's coming up for the next, uh, even if it's 10 second intervals or it's 20 minute intervals, you're going to be read what, what's going to, what's going to happen. Um, and that, 
that was a cool one because for all of our like um, partially sighted or BVI athletes, um, that changed the way now they can now they know what the charts look like that we are always thinking about and seeing. Um, but also for those of us who um, don't love the chart, now you can just look at kind of regular old uh, target powers and durations mm-hmm. and things like that. And so if you if you were the one the type of person who looked at the chart and weren't seeing the kind of the specific information you were looking for, um, this one will probably jive with you a little bit better. Um, and then <clears throat> there's a couple other interesting ones uh, that are small, but I think cool to explain. Um, a lot of our um, a lot of our BVI athletes, uh, blind and visually impaired, right? Correct. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of those athletes, uh, have coaches, um, just like everybody. And so what they do is the coaches put, and Chad puts, uh, wonderful information in workout descriptions and workout goals and things like that. And in the past, you've always had to, um, navigate away from the workout player and read the workout description or load it on the website or, you know, you'd have to, there's a workaround. And so what we decided to do is a lot of those athletes want to refresh their um, refresh what's what they're supposed to be getting out of the workout, whether it's cadence targets or you know this is going to be a hard session. Um, we made it so it's a it's a quick view. So if you hit the name of the workout in the upper left hand corner, it'll actually pull up your workout description, workout goals, and that that's read on Voiceover as well. Um, and so the idea being, you can kind of check in with your workout even in, during a rest period or during a, a work period, but you can make sure you're achieving the goals of the workout. Um, which I think, uh, as you guys know, there's so much valuable information in the workout description that if you read, if you read the workout description, every time your workouts are going to be better and you're going to feel a little more, um, you're gonna have a deeper understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and then for all the coaches, you can put coaching notes in it and things like that, which is going to be, I think that's pretty cool. Um, and then one <clears throat> final one that's specifically for, there's been, there's some other small ones, but the other kind of cool one that was, uh, engineering feat that we were keen on getting out was um, in the workout player itself, all of you guys who have used extended warm-up and extended cooldown, it's uh, that nice little button in in the workout chart. Um, and what we had to do is it was really hard to get um, that button to be pressable in the workout chart uh, with voiceover. Like it's really hard to, sw- to swipe over and find that button. And we were having a lot of issues with with making that happen. And so what we did is we created kind of a <clears throat> ongoing countdown. So with 30 seconds to go till your workout is going to end, um, we let you know that if you continue pedaling, um, you will extend your workout by 10 minutes. And then we give you a five second warning. And then as you continue pedaling, if you continue pedaling for 60 seconds after, um, there's a little bit of logic in there just to make the, the workout saving clean. But more or less is if you continue pedaling through your extended cooldown. We're going to take advantage. We're going to know you want to extend. Um, and this is specifically for voiceover athletes because we couldn't figure out a way other than kind of an auto prompt to get them to be able to interact with the workout chart. So this was a cool where it's, it's actually the workout player finally helps you do what you want to do with no interaction from you, just keep pedaling and we're going to take care of it. Um, and so that, that one's got some good feedback so far, which is cool. Um, and so, yeah, there were, I'm sure stand, I'm sure non BVI athletes are probably like, Hey, I want that feature. And it might end up coming. It might not, we don't know, but, uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're still trying some things. Um, it's, uh, as you got, <laughs> everything's harder than it looks, I promise. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're, we have some ideas, um, and we'll, we'll see what we can, we can get out. Um, 
but you can always turn on voiceover and uh, you can yeah. Can I explain how somebody navigates really quick? Uh, a yes, BVI please. athlete. On, so phones are like a, a huge breakthrough for BVI athletes because um, it allows them. And once again, that's blind and visually impaired. Uh, they have, uh, rather than using like a screen reader um, with a mouse, that can be difficult because you might not know exactly where you're at with a phone. You can actually, I'll put my there sleep there, but you can, you move your finger around and you track on your phone. And when you hover over something, it will tell you what that is. And then you're able to, once you land on that, you're able to lift your finger and tap and then select, and then you're able to move through. So it's a huge upgrade for these athletes rather than using screen readers and mouses that sometimes you can get lost. And it's a little bit tougher to be able to do having everything right there on your phone makes it just really easy. And the voiceover, um, functionality, whether you're using like uh, something on Android or iOS, whatever it is, is really good built into these phones compared to what it is on, on computers, which is usually an add-on. So it's a huge uh, benefit. But if you think about that, an athlete that's doing a really hard workout, imagine being, uh, you know, you're, you're training hard, you're at sweet spot and you're sweating and it's really rough. And then you have to, you wonder what's coming up next and where I'm at. And if you're a blind and visually impaired athlete, that's difficult because you would have to go through and, and rely on just the workout and hopefully you're hovering over the right thing. But like Pete said, they've anticipated that and built in a ton of features that helps these athletes proactively and gives them the information they need. Other cool things too, like usually when you have a lapse time of three minutes and 10 seconds left in your interval, many times screen readers would read that is it's 3 10 PM. And so then like that, you have to think about that. And we all know cognitive load mid workout. isn't exactly our strongest, uh, our, our most favorable companion. So there are a lot of things that you changed even on that level to make it easier. It's just, I, I, it's something that, uh, so we all feel like really privileged here at trainer road because we get to help make people faster. And I know that bikes are silly in the grand scheme of things, but it's really a metaphor for something larger, uh, for all of us, right. Uh, us getting faster on a bike is us achieving something great. And that's meaningful to us. And we feel really genuinely proud to be able to work and help people do that. And this is an underserved group of people. And we feel extremely proud to be able to work with paraguides and to, and all of these athletes to be able to support them better. Um, it's just something, I, I don't know. I, I feel extremely proud for it. And the team here that worked on it, uh, you're awesome. Uh, I'm sure that it was super fulfilling work uh, for you too, Pete. So yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, and everybody on the team was super, uh, it felt, felt pretty exciting going in every day and knowing that's what we're going to work out and making cool, clever solutions and breakthroughs and learning a lot at the same time. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a really fun project. Um, and I'm glad it's out and everybody gets to experience it now. Yeah. And if I could suggest a podcast that everybody listened to, uh, it would be the episode, the successful athletes podcast episode we recorded with Francesco Magisano. Uh, he's an athlete based out of New York. He works the similar organization, um, but different. It's called Achilles international. They do a lot of great things to help BVI athletes and, and athletes with all sort of, of, of unique needs. And they helped those. Uh, it's, it's so cool. That episode is incredible. And it'll, it really gave me a ton of perspective to think of what these athletes go through, through the training process. Um, Francesco wants to do, um, blind and visually impaired crits. Uh, and I told him, I said, you're crazy. Cause thinking of riding on the back of a bike and not being able to see, but he's like, no, man, it'd be amazing. It'd be super fun. So really cool episode. And I learned a ton from that. So you can check that one out. Um, but Pete, uh, 
this is kind of a, um, this is a, a bittersweet episode because this is going to be your last episode with us. And that was your last project here at trainer road. It was, yeah. Um, no, it's been, it's been a little rough for a couple of weeks, but you know, I, having the podcast is something to look forward to is, is I always do. And, um, I have so much fun doing it. So it's an, it's a good cherry on top at, at the end for sure. Yeah. So you're going to be leaving us here at trainer road. Um, you've got, uh, you've got some, some bigger fish to fry in terms of uh, supporting your family and, and playing that role that you need to with your family. And we're going to dearly miss you. Um, absolutely miss you. And I think I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of our audience as well. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my dad has a neurodegenerative degenerative disease. Um, and so kind of the way it all worked out and the way life deals you. Um, there was a lot of things going on all at once. And, and, um, as I'm sure some of you guys can relate, it, it doesn't feel that good to, uh, not do everything in your life to your full potential. And so I really wanted to be able to show up for trainer road and for my family, but it, the way that it works right now is that, um, I'm going to, uh, prioritize the family and, and get some good hangout times and, and do lots of, do lots of things that need to be done and, and are good for, for me and them. Um, and then, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, the world, the, there's always new things, always new, um, stuff happening. So that's kind of the next few months for me. Um, while I, uh, do all that and figure it out and then we'll see what happens. Um, but hopefully I can, if you guys request me off enough, you can make John, let me come back every <laughs> once in a while. Yes, please. Uh, I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> Chad's the real, yeah. Chad's the, the final say here. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and listeners, uh, you know, um, I know that you are uh, going to miss Pete a lot and Chad and I are super fortunate that we're close friends with Pete. So we'll still be seeing Pete and, and in contact with Pete. But, uh, if you want to get in touch with Pete, uh, in the midst of all of this or anything else, uh, share your support, just, just, and say thanks for all that he's offered on the podcast and here at trainer road so much, all the apps that we have, right now it's thanks to Pete's efforts. Um, so much of what he's done, uh, he has touch points all over the product that we use every day and everything else. Um, you should do that. I go find him on Instagram. He's also forgotten is the tag. We'll put it down below. Uh, you can also see it on the screen now with YouTube and you can find him on there, um, and share, share your love and support for Pete. So, um, but without further ado, Oh, let's, let's make this episode an awesome one. Uh, let's jump, jump into what we've kind of, uh, interest, interestingly been dubbing on our end, the shallow dive. Um, uh, and <laughs> we, we don't, don't mean try to, this and, at home. yeah. <laughs> and we don't <laughs> mean to, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. No shallow diving. Um, we don't mean to infer anything about the asker either, Kai, uh, you're far, you're far from shallow here. What we're getting at is we're not going to go full deep on this one, but we do have some good insight that we want to share in your question. And then we're going to get into another deep dive, but both of them have to do with anaerobic training. So Pete, no better episode to have you on than when we're talking about anaerobic stuff. Cause I'm, Pete I'm is, here. he's like the mascot <laughs> for anaerobic training. So <laughs> yeah, it's what he's made of. Okay. Kai says, uh, Hey all, is there a really a max? Is there really a max amount of weeks that anaerobic training can be done? I've been doing workouts like glacier and wind since the start of the year and want to add one extra block to of three weeks with these kinds of aerobic workouts. And he's saying could be compared to, uh, repeating crit or gravity specialty after short power build. 
He says, a cycling buddy told me that you should never do, and this is great. Usually when things start off with a cycling buddy never told me, sometimes they're right. Sometimes it's, it's impressively wrong too. Um, says a, a cycling buddy told me that you should never do more than two to three months of anaerobic training because of fatigue accumulation. I don't mind if my sustained efforts will take a hit because I'm more of an anaerobic athlete anyway. So what do you think? And kind of rolling back to his core question, is there really ma- a max amount of weeks of aerobic training that can be done? Uh, Chad, where do you want to start with this one? Uh, so if we want to be literal, literal about it and not really look at the long term or all the stuff that we're going to discuss relative to anaerobic capacity later, there might not be, I mean, you could do a bit of anaerobic training every week. It, it would just have to be in small doses. Maybe you can push that up to a more moderate dose and still get away with it, but past a point, yeah, it's it's definitely there. There is a limit. There's a limit with everything. There's certainly a limit with anaerobic training. So as you in, increase that frequency, you're kind of leaning into the a greater possibility of overtraining, of injury, of mental burnout. It, these these just increase in likelihood with you know the more of this type of training that you do. So when it comes to anaerobic training, I I always lean on the same resource initially, and then you know I, I kind of sprawl from there, but. Uh, I've been using Jan Albrecht since she's 20 years now. And and he's been a, he's a PhD in physiology and uh, biomechanics. He's a longtime coach and his coaching credentials are about as legit as it gets high level athletes, Olympic level athletes, world athletes, this many medals. He's, 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 he's qualified to say the least Uh, his book. And I'm not entirely sure he's written any other books, but this one I have, and I've, and I've returned to it so many times. It's called the science of winning planning, periodizing, and optimizing swim training. And if you're a a coach or just an athlete who wants to understand, you know, the nuts and bolts of all that goes on, this is absolutely a book you should read. And it is old uh, relatively, but it's, there's, there's so much useful information in there. And he points out a couple things that are very germane to to your question, Kai. First off, anaerobic uh, capacity or anaerobic work can, can run you down pretty simply. It's very costly, both in terms of what it can do, uh, in, in terms of damage to the muscles, in terms of depletion to your energy stores, the recovery trajectory, um, how deep you can dig the hole, all that. And he advises, and this is just his perspective, but he advises anytime you do decide to layer on anaerobic work, it's two weeks on a supplement or separated by a week of low intensity training or, or, or uh, geez, regeneration training is what he calls it. And then another two weeks of anaerobic training. So, so even then, even in a four week block of anaerobic work, he divvies it up into two weeks on a week off and then two weeks on. Yes, he is dealing with high level athletes and yes, they are during a period of very focused and specific work. Mm. But the point is he recognizes how that stress mounts up and how it affects the body and how it can affect everything else the athletes got going on. So that's kind of like a, that's a a big difference from what, like the anaerobic training you see within our plans. It isn't that focused work that we're talking about. That's every single day you're doing this anaerobic work and you're doing it in, in a very intentional manner where you don't have much else in there, right? Yeah, it's it's typically a touch-up in the earlier phases of training. And then when we work towards specialization, if in fact that's the sort of the, the sort of capacity you need to develop, then there's a greater emphasis on it for sure. But even then it's limited to that last eight weeks of your plan. And mm-hmm. it'll probably be a little more, I mean, even those plans, they're eight weeks long, but they're really six weeks long because the, the two taper weeks. So you're really only getting six weeks of it. And that's and it's not every day. <laughs> broken up with a recovery week. So again, it, it kind of abides this two weeks on, take a break, two weeks off pretty closely. Mm-hmm. 
So the point is pretty simple is that anaerobic workouts carry a very heavy toll and, and you have to respect that. You have to acknowledge it. Uh, another point that Dr. Ulbricht makes is that the anaerobic system is highly responsive, especially compared to the aerobic system, but just in a general sense, a couple, three weeks of training and most athletes will recognize noticeable improvements. You don't have to spend a bunch of time on this. I get that you enjoy it, Kai, and that's the sort of training you want to do. That's all good and fine. But in terms of what it yields, well, we're going to discuss that in depth. So mm -hmm. with all this in mind, it's, it's not really a question of how much you can tolerate. It's more a matter of this, this, the focus on this type of training and how it influences your performance. Hmm. And another question that you Kai specifically should ask yourself is, are you truly as anaerobic an athlete as you think? I mean, if we're endurance athletes and, and I, and I linked to a small video of a track sprinter warming up on rollers, spins it up in no time to 235 RPM. It's ridiculously gorgeous. So controlled. It just on a, on rollers, no, no, no less. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> but my point is this rider who would have, you know, should have very specific aptitudes. Still, I, I, I promise you there's a high emphasis on aerobic capacity. You know, mm -hmm. the, it's, the, the training distribution is different. This athlete is going to focus more on the anaerobic side than most athletes will, but there's still a heavy reliance on the aerobic system and therefore a lot of training on the aerobic side of things. Yeah, it's not, um, I, I'm trying to think right now, maybe really like the, for the most successful athletes that are out there, I'm not sure any of them just adhere within a specific zone like that, right? Like they just do anaerobic or they just do aerobic. Even you talk about full, like long course triathletes, right? They still do intense work on the bike. Um, they, you know, it's, there's, there's kind of a, there's an assumption I believe out there that, that maybe we don't fully think through all the time, but that some athletes just abide within a narrow bandwidth. And then that makes them a superstar at that. Right. And they're still able to be able to exploit that, but it's not that simple. And, and when you see those things, I mean, it depends on how you periodize your work. You know, you can, you can reverse it. You can do it traditionally. You can block it. You can do all these things, but you're still going to see a representation of every energy system. You're still going to touch on all of them. Even some of them, even though some of them may not make a whole lot of sense, they'll still be addressed. And there are reasons for that. We don't just lump them in there because we want to cover all the bases. We lump them in there because they're beneficial in ways that you may not understand, but will manifest in, in better performance. This is probably relatable to you, right, Pete? Because you, I, I guarantee you, like uh, you'd probably add money, pay money every workout to not do steady state and instead just do anaerobic work. That's like your jam. Yeah. And I, I do more steady in longer endurance work than I do anaerobic work. And I love anaerobic work and all the racing I do is pure anaerobic. Uh, but I can't, you can only layer so much on top of one another. Um, mm. the, the two to three week, uh, noticeable improvements made me laugh because we used to call that cramming for the test. So if like <laughs> after a big long winter, and you fought your first race as actually coming, you would just inject two or three weeks of pretty heavier, like heavier anaerobic work so that it just felt like you had, um, touched the system and it, it wasn't, you weren't reorganizing your whole calendar. You were just like, if it's the first race of the season and you haven't done anything really anaerobic, um, you can like, you can inject a little bit of, of, uh, of that type of intensity and it will definitely change you, but it doesn't, um, I always felt like, um, everything you do layers on top of one another. And it, to me, it seems like as long as your layers are sound and the foundation is there, just like Chad said, if, if you're, if you if you have all the layers in the cake, it's going to stand much better. Um, and some layers are thicker than others, but, um, 
definitely, even as a pure, an anaerobe that uh, only <laughs> likes to go hard, I do more, more steady state and more endurance than anaerobic work every, all, almost all the weeks of the year. So, yeah. I hesitate to use the term easy come, easy go with anaerobic fitness, um, but it, it is kind of uh, similar to that, right, Chad, in the sense maybe, that maybe, relatively speaking to aerobic work. Maybe quick come, quick go would be better because it's certainly not yeah. easy. It's not easy to <laughs> yeah. do the work. It's not easy to pull out the efforts <laughs> yeah. in, in uh, competition either. Yeah, yeah. So this is also something that if you don't touch up on it, it drops off, you, you know, and, and this is probably like you said, Pete kind of made evident in a lot of race performance from athletes. You know, when you start out, you feel like you're missing that top end. That's often said. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if it's that sort of racing, then yeah, this is the sort of thing that if you haven't been doing it, your body, it will seem foreign to your body. Right. So you touch up on it and you can get it back firing. So, but yeah, in, in this case, Kai, um, I'm not sure that any of us, so this is that whole theory, especially since we're amateur athletes, Remember, that's a really important thing. We aren't paid to do this. We aren't paid to be a specific type of athlete. No, you know, it's kind of silly to call each of us average athletes, climbers, sprinters, rollers, or anything else like that, because heck, we can just be whatever we want to be, um, within our realm of, of, of a capability. But with this, I don't know many athletes that get really far by just doing what they're good at. You know, you also have to do the thing that you're not good at and, that's especially when we're talking about aerobic training, that's just, it's such a absolutely required foundation and support for everything you do. And those anaerobic efforts, as you do more of them in closer frequency, they become increasingly aerobic. So that, you know, once again, you can't just top off the top, the, the foundation gets, gets revealed pretty quick. So yeah. Now to Chad, how about we go deep uh, with Tim's question? He says one for coach Chad. And this is an interesting predicament of a question to consider. He says, can anaerobic efforts of 120 to 130% FTP and above, he's saying, result in a decreased lactate threshold due to the increased rate of glycolysis? I like how short this answer is. It's also high impact. There's a lot to consider in here. Um, so Chad, uh, so basically he's talking about, there are a lot of assumptions here, um, or I should say there are assumptions that are made within this and kind of like, if this, then that is basically what we have throughout this, this question, mm -hmm. uh, where would you like to start with this one? First off, I'd like to point out how fun these questions are in that it's such a short question. There's just, it's, it's a sentence and probably this deep dive more than any other. The biggest challenge is typically the literature review, trying to do all the reading, process it, make sense of it, make notes, and then compile those notes. This one none of that was nearly as stressful or challenging as trying to make this concise. I mean, I had, <laughs> I had probably six, seven rambling pages of information. That I had to whittle down to what I try to keep to three pages. And it, it was, it, it was hard. It was super hard because there were so many things I wanted to expand on. There are a lot of things I learned over the course of this, but uh, yeah. So, so these are my, these are my troubles. This is, uh, <laughs> this is what I go through for you all the sacrifices I make. <laughs> but, but I did, I whittled it down to, I think what's relevant and, and important for people to understand, because I do think this is a very misunderstood topic. I think anytime an endurance athlete looks at anaerobic work, there's, there's so many misconceptions that somehow just, just hang in there for decades. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> to reiterate, or just let me restate the question, can anaerobic efforts result in decreased lactate threshold due to increased rate of glycolysis? Okay. So the short answer before we explain what all those things mean, just to let 
Tim off the hook if he wants to leave early. They could make you a more anaerobic athlete. This is this is possible. But the real question, and I think the question you're asking is, would this harm your FTP? And and maybe the realer question, if you'll permit it, is would this hamper your performance? Because it really does just come down to performance. Who cares what the numbers say if you're performing better than you ever have? So let's begin with a brief discussion of endurance capacities. Now, endurance, there's a lot of capacities we can develop as cyclists, but we're looking at the endurance side of things, which really makes it just about two, aerobic capacity and anaerobic capacity. It is that simple. On the aerobic side of things, aerobic capacity is VO2 max. And that's typically the term we throw at it. And that's the maximum oxygen utilization, right? We've talked about this a million times. It's typically measured per minute, you know, milliliters per kilogram per minute, if we want to relate it to body weight or just liters per minute, if we want to look at the absolute amount of oxygen pulled into the system. On the other side of things, anaerobic capacity, VO2 max, take out the O2, slot in LA for lactate, VLA max. So VLA max, if you ever see that term, that's what we're talking about, anaerobic capacity. And all this is, is the maximum lactate produced. And this is measured per second. We'll get back to that. But so, so on the aerobic side of things, it's the maximum utilization on the anaerobic side of things it's the maximum production. So when Tim talks about rate of glycolysis or glycolytic rate, as it's often put, he's really just describing anaerobic capacity. And, and with respect to that measurement that I just mentioned, it's millimoles per liter per second. And you don't really need to get hung up on all of those. Just understand for context that say an, an Ironman competitor and, and you, we're going to talk about this later, could have a uh, glycolytic rate around 0.3, whereas a field sprinter uh, at a high level could have a glycolytic rate way up at 0.9. So, you know, wow. th- those are the difference. That's just some, some comparison, right? A very low end Profound of things, difference. Very high end of things. It, it's substantial. It's hugely yeah. substantial. But the point is, is that you, if you increase your rate of glycolysis, you raise your anaerobic capacity. Okay. That's the simple of it. What's also important to understand before we move uh, on to other topics is that aerobic capacity and anaerobic capacity are not a seesaw relationship. It's not as though if you improve one, the other is, is negatively impacted or vice versa. Rather, you can have simultaneous improvements in both. It's completely possible. You can raise your aerobic capacity and your anaerobic capacity at the same time. You're increasing your ability to both produce and metabolize lactate. You can have that. And it's a lot easier to come by earlier in your training trajectory than it is toward the end. And it's more impactful toward the end when you really need to be specific with how those two systems balance. Hmm. Okay. So next we'll, uh, we'll get to lactate threshold, but first got to talk about lactate itself. And if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you've undoubtedly heard me talk about George Brooks. Uh, he's been a PhD in this realm since she's the early seventies, UC Berkeley. Uh, he, he, he's the man on this topic. I mean, I'm sure there are other resources on the matter. I know there are, but uh, man, I don't think anybody surpasses his contributions to the research on this particular topic. A couple of years ago, I came across an article in Science Daily, 2018, where he, he states or paraphrases, but he's uh, basically, he, he, he lets us in on something that I think a lot of people miss. First off, lactate it's a major fuel source. And I think that's pretty widely agreed upon, uh, except in some amazingly resilient textbooks that still perpetuate and cycling commentating information. <laughs> oh, don't, don't get me started. Don't get me started. I cringe. I have to His shut muscles are flooded with lactate every time. It's yeah. like, <laughs> not on that road. Yeah. yeah sorry, cold. Chad. <laughs> okay. So it's a major fuel source. 
it's the major material to support blood sugar level. So, you know, blood glucose levels, and it's a powerful signal for metabolic adaptation to stress. And I've linked to that article there. I highly recommend every endurance athlete out there, everyone listening, let, read it. It takes five minutes. It'll open your eyes in a number of respects, not, not just a endurance performance, but all the wonderful things that lactate is responsible for and can do and, and the directions, the science is trending with it, et cetera. It's very interesting. Okay. So again, those three things, major fuel source supports blood glucose control, and it's a powerful sign for metabolic adaptation to stress. These are hugely important to endurance athletes. I mean, they're of general importance to everybody, but especially to endurance athletes. What else is interesting about lactate is that it enters the bloodstream twice as fast as glucose peaking at around 15 minutes versus the 30 minutes it takes for glucose to peak. Wow. That's rapid. And, and George Brooks actually had a hand in the development of Cytomax. We talked about Cytomax last week and Jonathan yeah. noted how if he it's one of those that if he leaves in the fridge or leaves on his bike, he's got to dump it out. Yeah. And I think I might know why that is. I think it's because uh, Cytomax actually included lactate. So in addition oh. to the typical glucose and fructose yeah. that you'll get in every energy drink out there these days, George worked with Cytomax and they put a bit of lactate in it. Which is super interesting because it's a hugely readily available resource and a preferred energy resource for so much of the body, but it didn't stick. And, and I question why that is, and I think I have my answer. It, no one wants to buy an, a, an energy performance or a performance enhancing energy supplement that has lactate listed on it, right? Yeah. I mean, think it's about got it. a That's, bad brand, right? It's got a bad brand and, and people don't understand what it is. They think I'm trying to stave off lactate accumulation. Why would I contribute <laughs> to the problem? So it's not very marketable. <laughs> I really do think that's it because scientifically it, it makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So huh. in continuation, what is lactate? It's, it's, it's one of the eventual byproducts of the anaerobic slide of metabolism. So of anaerobic glycolysis. So really simply bioenergetics lesson here, not going to go deep at all. Carbohydrate is introduced into the system, pulled out of the muscles, whatever it's broken down into glucose. <clears throat> that gluco glucose is then broken into pyruvate. As far as we'll go right now, if under cir certain circumstances, it accumulates, it becomes lactate along with the lactate comes a hydrogen ion. And then that hydrogen ion may, may sound insignificant or like a detail I need not include, but that hydrogen, hydrogen ion is typically what's credited for muscle burn these days. It's pretty agreed upon that lactate doesn't cause muscle burn. It's widely agreed upon amongst people who actually know what's going on. It, it just doesn't. It's a fuel. Mm -hmm. The hydrogen ions, however, are what can reduce our, our blood pH, increase our blood acidity. And in, in line with this little factotum, I'm linking to George, uh, George Brooks, 2018 review. Ooh, this is for the true, true, true nerds. If you want to go deep on something, and I'm telling you, you can lose months in this single paper because the paper itself is complex and the numerous studies it lists to, you'll just go on and on and on. But if you have the time, there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in there. But the fact is that with higher levels of lactate, blood pH decreases. I'm not saying that the lactate causes a decrease. We know that it doesn't, but more lactate accumulates, blood acidity increases. Okay. Muscle burn happens. And that's, that's the acidosis that we all truly fear. It's acidosis. that's one of the, one of, because mm. muscle fatigue is a really complex beast, but acidosis is one of the affronts to homeostasis. Lactate is not. And interestingly, those hydrogen ions it's argued they're not either. It's this whole it's crazy. balance it's between still... lactate being negative, hydrogen being positive, then produced in a one-to-one -one ratio. They balance each other out. It's an interesting, again, 
check out that paper. It'll, it'll give you a million directions to go. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> two important points on lactate to take away before we move on to lactate threshold is one, it's constantly being produced at work and at rest. Sitting here right now, we're producing lactate, probably somewhere along the lines of one millimole per liter per kilogram, whatever it may be. I, I'm not entirely sure, but it's being produced right now. Secondly, two fates. It's either metabolized for energy or it becomes glucose again. Okay. That's basically the only two directions it goes. So now let's move on to lactate threshold and lactate threshold is quite simply the, the highest intensity that an athlete can sustain without accumulating lactate in the blood. So, like I said, at rest, we have lactate in our blood. We do a bit, a bit of work that lactate level ramps up. As long as we level off our work effort or output level, it levels off. We've achieved a steady state, do a bit more work and level off lactate too will eventually level off. Keep on escalating the amount of work you're doing. It will eventually reach a tipping point where you can no longer attain a steady state. This is a threshold. This is where lactate is now being produced at a rate faster than we can, than we can clear it. So my preferred term is MLSS or max last. I, I just find it more descriptive because it's the maximum lactate steady state. We can attain a steady state. This is as much as we can tolerate. I like that term. Today, we're going to use lactate threshold and it's, it, it suffices perfectly. So, so no worries there. Okay. So this is the threshold between achieving that steady state and no longer leveling out. It's the physiological going on behind the measures and our measures when it comes to cycling or our measure is FTP functional threshold power. And all this is, is the power that occurs, the power that we can produce while this physiological going on is taking place in the background. So, so how much power can we produce when we're at lactate threshold for runners, for swimmers, for kayakers, for any other type of endurance athlete, they'll probably use something like pace or speed at lactate threshold. That's kind of their anchor for you know, the type, various you know, training zones and <clears throat> types of workouts and et cetera. Okay. So there's lactate threshold. So now let's move on to uh, what Tim terms rate of glycolysis. So glycolysis is simply, as I stated, the anaerobic metabolism of carbohydrate. So no oxygen required. This is how we break down sugar and it yields those two pyruvate, but it also yields a couple ATP. So we get a little bit of energy and we get it really fast, which compounds to a lot of energy, just really inefficiently, right? We blow through fuel stores really rapidly when we start dumping carbohydrate and processing it quickly because we're doing a lot of work. Now, other than those, the, the energy, the two ATP, those two pyruvate are what eventually goes into the mitochondria and they yield a lot of energy but they do it comparatively slowly. So instead of a couple ATP, now we get 34, 36. Some papers insist on 38 ATP. So it's, it's not even comparable. It's a huge difference, but it happens slowly. So to sum all that up, carbohydrate into anaerobic metabolism yields a couple pyruvate, a couple ATP. Pyruvate into the mitochondria yields a lot of ATP, 34, 36 of them. Now from here forward, I'm not even going to talk about pyruvate. I'm just going to talk about lactate. And this was one of those topics that I wanted to include, but it just takes us off point. It's fun to talk about and understand and try to explain and make sense on the fly, but it, it's unnecessarily complex for the, the question that's being asked. So this podcast to... is cross country Olympic, not cross country marathon. Okay. So no, no more use of pyruvate. It's lactate. I mean, they're for, for, the, for our use today, they're synonymous. So training can increase our anaerobic capacity, right? You can increase the rate that you metabolize glucose glycolysis, right? You can increase, increase your glycolytic rate. 
In doing so, you're increasing your ability to produce lactate. But if, if the rate of glycolysis is too high or your anaerobic capacity is too low, and we'll get to that. Aerobic capacity, much, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Aerobic capacity is too low then too much lactate accumulates. So it's basically you're accumulating it at too fast a rate for your mitochondria to process. Anaerobic system is outpacing the aerobic system. So th th this is going to happen regardless, right? We're, everyone's going to come up to a point where they simply can't level out anymore. They're going to push past that. And that's just the nature of hard work. Uh, but training can shift where this, where this occurs. So training can actually determine where the balance between your aerobic system and your anaerobic system lies. Now, if you'll recall, I said lactate has two fates, right? It can be metabolized or it can be reconstituted is the word I'm going to use to glucose. So if you, if you, if you look at where it can go first, it can be, we accumulate a bunch of lactate. It can be shuttled off to neighboring cells. So an interchange between the slow twitch and the fast twitch neighboring slow twitch, whatever it can move from cell to cell to cell with, within a muscle in, in, in there it's metabolized for energy. It can accumulate and then spill into the blood gets transported back to the liver and then it's metabolized back into or converted back into glucose. This is the Cori cycle, something we all probably learned about and subsequently forgot in high school, but that, that is a process that's known and important. It can be shuttled to other neighbors, organs, for instance, the brain, the heart. These are supposedly according to Brooks and according to a lot of research, this is the preferred fuel source for these organs, for these, hmm. for these neighbors. And again, it's metabolized for energy there. Are there other fates? Probably. I don't know, but let, let's get back to the balancing act. So when we train specifically, or when Tim, for instance, trains specifically to increase his anaerobic capacity, it carries consequences. Some of them are desirable, some are not. So pretty apparent that anaerobic metabolism requires a very specific fuel, carbohydrate. So in training up your anaerobic capacity, you're increasing your reliance on carbohydrate. Sounds all good and fine. I'll just eat more carbohydrate, but this incurs or brings with it greater nutritional challenges, especially mm -hmm. over long durations. So welcome to the world. If you're not already indoctrinated into it of carbohydrate loading, higher intakes of carbohydrate, both pre, during, and post increased gut tolerance to go along with those higher levels of carbohydrate. Something I don't think a lot of people consider, but added expense. A lot of these products oh. are pretty expensive. When you start using a lot of them, that expense just rises right along with its usage. You start that to become plant? just as expensive as your car. If you look at mileage, <laughs> <Totally. Yeah. laughs> depending on the, the line of products you utilize, you can spend a lot of money on this stuff. Yeah. And then it yeah. affects your planning. Now you have to plan differently nutritionally because you're burning fuel at a different rate. So, and also potentially if you overdevelop your glycolytic capacity, this is absolutely a thing that can happen. What's what happens? You get too high rate of glycolysis, which leads to too high rate of lactate production, which means a greater demand on your aerobic capacity. And this can all lead to greater lactate accumulation at lower power outputs. So now you're dumping lactate at less power than you used to. This is kind of like the theory of, I mean, this is one of the things that are accomplished when you reset into a base phase, right? And mm, into spending totally. more time, like this is one of the, one of the many, many goals of base training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely correct. Okay. So how do we balance our anaerobic capacity and our aerobic capacity? And obviously it's dependent on discipline and we have to consider what we're after and you know, what type of racer we need to be, how, where all, all those things, but also you have to factor in our unique physiologies. You know, are you largely 
slow twitch or fast twitch twitch driven. I mean, there, there's a genetic bias there. Your nutritional practices, do you eat a ton of carbohydrate? Because that's going to influence how well you metabolize a ton of carbohydrate and your strengths and weaknesses. And I mentioned this because I see it, maybe not often, but I see it, the athletes pursue improvements and they do so at the expense of impairments. So they chase one mm -hmm. thing and don't recognize the detriment or the, the, the issues it's causing with other things. And maybe I'm looking at you, Tim, I don't know what type of athlete you are, but does it suit you to emphasize your anaerobic capacity? You may like those workouts, but is that going to make you a more successful athlete in terms of what you want to be good at the events you partake in? Kind of like Kai's question. Yeah. Uh, that we <clears throat> yeah, just totally. answered. Right. And like a lot of us, when we get into that season of racing when, or season of riding, when we maybe not race as much, maybe not train as much, just chase Strava KOMs. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the sort of thing. If you continue to do the same thing over and over like that, yeah, yeah. it can happen. Yeah. yeah. And you, you, you plateau or you start going backwards and you can't figure out why I'm doing all this on aerobic work. I should be able to hang on to, to anything. And, you know, initially mm -hmm. for, for a little while, that's probably true, but eventually it's not going <laughs> to be because it all comes back to the aerobic system. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's do a quick rider comparison to kind of maybe put this, put, put a little visual behind this. So let's take rider A and rider B. Rider A is an Ironman, uh, an elite level Ironman competitor. Uh, rider B, high level criterium racer. Now they both weigh 75 kilograms. So they're both 165 pounds. They both have a 250 watt threshold. And you think, okay, they're, they're the same rider. They have the same capabilities and they have the same capacity. So that, nothing could be further from the truth. They might, but they probably don't. And it could be a pretty wide disparity. So in the case of the Ironman competitor, I talked earlier about having a really low anaerobic capacity. So let's pin them at a 0.3, whereas the crit rider, maybe it's the sprinter on the team too, has a really high anaerobic capacity way up at 0.9. So three times that of the IM competitor. The aerobic capacity in the, so the VO2 max of the, the Ironman racer is 50 milliliters per minute. So, so 50, whereas the crit racer has a 63. So, so right here, we have the same FTP, very different capabilities. And as you'd expect, they have to train differently. The point here is that if you emphasize the wrong energy systems, you do so at your own peril. So specific training matters, right? Yeah, it absolutely matters, especially mm -hmm. as you get closer and closer to your important events. So this is different disciplines, right? No, obviously no one's going to train an Ironman competitor the same as they're going to train a criterium racer. But what if you look within the same discipline? So having just watched, uh, in, in the midst of watching road world championships right now, time trial was a couple of days ago. Won't give anything away, but the juniors fastest times were right around 26 minutes. Step up to the U two threes, right around 34 minutes, longer course, step up to the elites way up at 48 minutes. So different energy demands within very similar events. The point is, is that you can intentionally make yourself more glycolytic. And in some cases, maybe that makes sense. Maybe the juniors, knowing they're only going to be out there for roughly 26 minutes, say, I'm going to go whole hog on the anaerobic training because there's going to be a bigger anaerobic contribution to an event that short. I'm going to lean into that. I would suspect not because they're probably not just time trialists. They're probably road racers also. So while they do need to have some anaerobic capacity and capability, they're probably still mostly reliant on the aerobic side of things. But in most cases... And actually, sorry, that describes most cases. All of us as endurance athletes should primarily focus on increasing our aerobic capacity. And in doing so, that helps us prevent the lactate accumulation that we're trying to avoid. Put it in another way, you adjust this anaerobic capacity based on the strength of your aerobic capacity. Build a big VO2 max first, then layer those glycolytic capabilities on top based on 
what type of athlete you are, what you want to be good at, what your strengths and weaknesses are, what you're built like physiologically, et cetera. So the overall takeaway here is train your aerobic capacity to its maximum. Do that first and foremost, and then adjust your anaerobic capacity to suit. Awesome. Okay. Which brings us to the final, final little bit of uh, information. So how do we assess or measure and then track changes in both these capacities? Well, a couple of ways you can do it. Um, probably several. I'm going to give you a couple. One is you can measure and track your oxygen uptake and your lactate levels on the reg. Got to do it consistently, right? If we're, if we're, we're trying to track changes, you can't do it every once in a while. It's got to be pretty, pretty consistently pinned down. You can do this in a lab. You can do it on your own. You can buy a VO2 max mask. You can buy a lactate uh, machine. You can use software that calculates it. These are all things that are available and you can do it, but this puts it on you. Add to that, these improved measures, so increase in oxygen uptake, increase in lactate production, don't necessarily jibe with improved performance. The, the, the only true measure of performance is performance. You can have an increased FTP. You can have an increased VO2 max, an increased VLA max. You can have all those things, but does it make you faster when you need to be faster? Do you perform better in your important events? So my suggestion is, is the alternative to this, is that you track changes with performance itself. Focus less on your aerobic capacity, your anaerobic capacity, even your FTP. Gasp. I know. <laughs> Use adaptive training. Then it's on us. We got you, right? Do discipline-specific, phase-dependent, going to move you through base, build, and specialty. Successfully complete your workouts and get served more demanding, more specific workouts. All the while, you're targeting continually improved performance. To put that another way, you let your actual performances guide you. Use the workouts themselves as their own measures of improvement. That's such an important point. Uh, it's, a, it's so easy to get caught up in the numbers for all of us. This was actually a takeaway from James Dunleap's podcast, the Successful Athletes podcast we did. He's a data analyst. And for him, cycling just sucked him in, right? It was like, who I can measure absolutely sure. everything. everything. And that lent to this, uh, this issue that he was talking about with managing mental health with the sport as well. Now he's to a point where he just commits to, he says, I know that I like to be able to train this much and I train this much and I don't pay attention to the numbers. Obviously when I'm training, I hit my targets. That's what I do there but I'm not trying to measure absolutely everything to try to find something that's, that's uh, confirming what I'm doing. Instead, I just let the performance lead and that's the move forward. And that's one, that's the big reason we could have structured adaptive training in so many different ways. And that's why we went after performance and letting an athlete's performance on a workout serve as the indication of where they're at rather than trying to come up with new fancy metrics or anything else like that. So well, consider one, one benefit of that, of that is when you show up at a race I mean, you don't have to, well, all my numbers are good. So I should be able to do well today. Rather all my workouts that are just like the race I'm about to do have been good. So I know I'm going to be good today. Yeah. Huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. You aren't bridging that gap between numbers and hoping that the context hits. You've already been doing the context. It's, it's, it's there. Exactly. Um, Chad, this was awesome. Um, I'm going to recap this. Uh, so, so basically, uh, to train specific energy systems or train specific energy systems by training specific capacity. So when we're talking about, uh, you know, if you're looking at anaerobic and aerobic and we're looking at the trade-offs there, well, if you train one or the other, you'll get the benefits that you get. The early goal with a lot of this training is to maximize your energy production in general. And then later on, it's more specific. So base build and specialty. That's when we talk about, you know, like Pete, 
that's when he's working on being able to attack over and over and over again, or attack and sustain, attack and sustain, like he would in something like a breakaway pace line, something like that. That's where the specificity starts to come in. But striking the balance is really where it comes down to finding ideal performance, right? <clears throat> so it's making sure that you're doing the right things there. Um, endurance athletes can't be so like one dimensional that you just focus on one sort of training and then you expect that to deliver you performance on race day. Uh, specificity is something that's supported by a broad range of training that ends up being an athlete, you know, in a spot where they're actually prepared to be able to take off and perform well. Um, so, uh, the, it's complex if you try to balance all of that, but that's why you go through the process of finding structured training plans that are built out for it. I mean, we all have trained to a certain point. I think all of us even to, uh, here at times we think, eh, I probably know what's best this week. Uh, and, but many times it's easy to find us off the rails if we deviate from, from good principles. So structured training will get you to the point where you don't have to worry about this, this give and take Tim, where you're worried that high, really high intensity anaerobic work is going to be harming something else. You don't have to worry about that. And yes, while doing that could effectively influence your lactate threshold in one way or another, if you're doing that aerobic work, you're balancing that out just the same. You're not causing any problems there. You're rising true. The tide is rising all ships in that case. So don't have to worry about it. This is just like, basically the answer with this one is why is structured training important, right? Um, that's, uh, we could have summed it up right there. <laughs> so, Chad, thank you for doing all that research on that yeah, very, and digging into it. Welcome. Uh, super yeah. interesting to always talk about lactate in general. That's always a, a fascinating one because it's much maligned and badly branded. Um, some rapid fire questions. You guys ready? Cool. Okay. Um, no answer, but I assume you're ready. Um, okay. Ready. From Richard, ready. he says, where is Nate? Uh, and the answer for that one is Nate's not with us now. He'll be with us in two weeks. Uh, we do kind of like a, a pre Cape Epic kickoff podcast where we'll have all the different folks with us. Chad and Pete are not going to Cape Epic now. Um, but, uh, we have Rob and Ross, uh, two of our employees. Uh, we, we have an office in South Africa that we've recently opened up and they're two of our employees over there. They're extremely fast. Like, way faster than us. I think Rob, perhaps, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, Rob, but I believe that Rob is, uh, rides for the South African national team for mountain biking, whether it's cross country marathon or Olympic, I cannot remember, but he's an absolute hammer. Um, and then, uh, Ross is absolutely no slouch himself. I think they're both over like well over five Watts per kilo, way high performing, uh, athletes. So they're taking the spot for team thunder and honey. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to retain the thunder and honey name. They might just be yeah, trainer road too. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's ours. It's yeah. Ours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, in, intellectual property. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, in this case, uh, so yeah, so Nate will be doing this then. And then Nate isn't on the podcast quite as much right now because he's just focusing on a whole lot of other things. We've got a lot of things going on at trainer road and his, his, his uh, efforts are needed elsewhere. Um, but we have new hosts coming in, uh, over the next two months, we'll probably have three new hosts new to the show hosts, which will be exciting. Uh, hopefully, uh, that'll be coming on and we'll be regularly cycling through them, which is exciting. Okay. Uh, Devin says biggest Cape Epic concern for each. I know you guys aren't doing Cape Epic, but I still want you to share your concerns for the other teams on what you think is going to be the biggest concerns. Mm. Uh, Chad, do you want to start and then we'll go to sure. Pete and myself. Just mishaps, plain and simple. It's, it's eight days where, uh, and, and other than that prologue, they're long days. 
So there's just a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. And I don't want to plant that seed. Obviously, I don't want anybody dwelling on it. But the fact is, it's likely something's going to go wrong. Let's just hope it doesn't go very wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Pete, how about you? I, I would say Chad and I talked a lot about this because Chad and I were, just so everybody knows, Chad and I were what we were planning on winning. Um, <laughs> too bad we won't it's real. be there. <laughs> so we were definitely going to win now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, we talked about there's so many small things that happen, and it's kind of how robust you are and how capable you are of adapting to um, mechanicals and crashes and pacing mishaps and all the things being stressed, not sleeping well, all the little stuff. Chad and I felt pretty calm and collected that we could just sort of weather all storms um, and kind of chug along. Um, and I, I wouldn't say, um, I wouldn't say anybody's particularly uh, not able to do that, but it, when it's just thing after thing after thing and crashes happen and mechanicals happen and you didn't sleep that well. And then, you know, it, it all stacks up pretty heavily. And I think that's going to be the problem that, all the teams are going to experience is how do you perform when you don't feel that good and you're not that excited and your bike isn't working and things like that, because mm -hmm. that's kind of what I think the crux of the race is more than, uh, your, your 5.4 Watts per kilo that Brandon has or whatever he's running with yeah. nowadays. Yeah. And your teammate constantly making you work a little too hard or dropping mm -hmm. you or, yep. you know, that sort of stuff adds up when you're talking about racing for 35 hours uh, in a week. And, potentially is what we'll be doing. Uh, you know, it's, it's long for, especially us that aren't as fast as Nino and, or Kate Courtney or one of those athletes, you know, we're not going to be at that level. I, I agree. I share the same concern that it's the small things. I think hands, wrists, arms, that's like the big thing to let go. And it's funny podcast listeners. Nate is totally unconcerned about this race. Like, I don't know if he's trying to convince himself of it, but it's not in his character. Usually Nate is, he's overly concerned. And I would say that he worries too much about a lot of the small details. And in this case, he keeps telling me it's a gravel race, bro. We're fine. And I'm like, Nate, it's rough. And <laughs> even though it may not be single track, single track in many cases would probably be preferable to the bumpy roads that you're on. Um, it's the constant small bumps that end up causing the sort of fatigue and jarring that really make you make bad decisions. And what I mean by that is that's when you hold your bars differently and you're holding your bars differently because you're fatigued and uncomfortable. And then that one bump hits and you're not quite in the right position. Your hand slips off, then you crash or, uh, that it causes you to get blisters on your hands. And then when you have blisters on your hands, then that causes a whole cascade of other problems of once again, not riding your bike properly. Cause you're trying to, you know, hold your bars differently. And who was it a couple of years ago? I think, I think it was Sam gaze, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was just noodling down what appeared to be just a basic gravel road. Yeah. I mean, just an access road and he just hit a rut and crashed, but crashed hard enough that he was out of the race. I mean, yep. something so seemingly innocuous was, was a race ending affair. Absolutely. So that's my main concern there. Um, the fitness part, like none of us are going to be close to winning. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Like you're, this is Cape Epic. It's a different world, right? They, they are really, really fast people. So if for us, it's less about like, are you going to be fit enough to do it? I think everybody's fit enough to get through it. We're all going to be brought to our knees uh, pretty quickly. Right. And then you're just going to be pedaling along and, and just dragging through, but it's really the other stuff. That's my main concern. So 
yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out with that Cave Epic preview podcast uh, when I get to, and I will grill Nate for everybody. Don't worry. I will be asking him every single question. Like why in the world has he hardly been riding his mountain bike and instead he says that strength training is all he needs. Um, we'll get it down to the bottom of that. Plenty of other stuff. So uh, Rich says, would you rather ride uphill with a tailwind or downhill with a headwind? <laughs> Uh, oh. uphill uphill with a tailwind for all those Strava records that I've I already have and I want to <laughs> already, yeah I already have yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to go back and PR them put it further yeah. out of reach Chad yeah, no, yeah. mostly that because downhill with a oh with a headwind downhill with a headwind that's the worst no downhills with headwinds there should be it's no wind on downhills that's just plain discouraging <laughs> yeah yes, yes. I, I'm gonna stick to my answer I don't want to write either of neither of them me up to the top (laughs) (laughs) and then give me no wind coming down i would ride uphill with the tailwind even though that's when you're producing the most heat and that can make it really hot too and ugh, really nasty but i'll take that over the absolute discouragement and and just crushing unfortunate fate of having a headwind on a downhill it's terrible so uh, thoughts on uci gravel world series and world championships from Ericsson. Super exciting. Uh, the, I don't know anything about the Gravel World Series. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. I have no idea what that's about. Same. Hopefully you guys can tell me. Uh, World Championships, just exciting as can be, as always. And I'm especially fascinated with the mixed team time trial. Watched that yesterday. No spoilers, mm. but it's it's like miniature dream teams on both the male and female side combined per country. It was it's so cool. fun to watch. I I saw it listed on the on the schedule of events. And, uh, that's that's throwaway. Why are they even including that? No, it was tremendously exciting. Yeah, Pete, how about you on the on the gravel involved UCI involvement in gravel? Uh, man, put me on the spot. I I love World Championship races in the ideal of what they are and what they stand for, and. Um, so I'll be excited to watch it, but I sort of feel like, <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, it seems, it seems like to me, I would prefer that there was different categories of gravel, like more Granduro style, more mm-hmm. epic road race style, more, um, kind of techie grasshopper style. Like I, I would prefer there to be discipline so that you could get like a XEO versus a short track versus something like that. That seems to make sense to me, but maybe that's just the way my brain works, but I would like man, then we need three world championships, all the things, but I don't know. To me, it seems like gravel is so broad that I guess it's like road racing. Like you could have a climber's course or you could have a flounder's course. Uh, but at the same time, maybe, all right, I just talked myself into an entire circle. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I've said this before that gravel is just road racing on subpar roads, like okay. subpar road surface. I don't think that it's going to Cause I would assume that the UCI's gravel events would be pretty par for the course and t- like, they wouldn't be like you said, something like a grasshopper or even a Belgian waffle ride. Right. Yeah. It's not going to be that diverse. <clears throat> so as a result, I think that you'll see the same, you know, big engines that do well in one day races like the spring classics do well in that case. I would, that's what I would assume. Uh, I, I am curious. And, and the whole spirit of gravel thing is ridiculous to me. Uh, there was no spirit of gravel. There's bike riding and bike riding's fun. And then those that were crying out for the spirit of gravel were just basically trying to force everybody into a format and 
an operation that favors them getting good results. Let's be real. That's what it really was about. It was gatekeeping. And so, um, and the spirit of gravel is dead. Uh, if it ever existed, uh, it's just bike riding is still fun. Okay. So that's, that's there. UCI isn't going to kill that off, but, um, I I'm curious about two things. Number one, is the UCI going to, uh, sanction existing events here in the U S if so, which event that be cause lifetime, a big company, uh, not dissimilar in this case, like a, an analogy would be to, or a, a comparison would be to ASO, right. In the sense that, uh, a promote a promoter and an organizing body for races has then a sanctioning body of the UCI come in, maybe lifetime brings it in. And if so, does, does Leadville then get uh, added into this? I don't know. Um, that'd be interesting to see, or is it, is does unbound, which seems like the, the gravel event, does that one pick the world championships or is it even a UCI event or do all these races like steamboat Leadville unbound Belgian waffle ride? Do they decide that? No, we do not want to be involved with the UCI. And that allows them to stay more unique, different and fringe. If so, I'm just curious to see like how that works. And then the final question is to solve all of the ridiculous drama that exists within gravel. Uh, are they, I can't think of a single UCI like world championship event that allows other than this mixed relay, but that's not a mass start event, but a mass start UCI event that allows mixed genders and also mixed between pros and amateurs, because that part many times is referenced in the spirit of gravel thing where people say it's so cool that pros and amateurs can ride together, men and women, it's all together. And then everyone complains about it and has internet fights about that very thing that they say is what makes it cool. So, uh, I, I don't see how the UCI wouldn't separate that. And if that's the case, then, uh, does that remove the whole appeal of this mass start racing for a lot of people? I don't know. Also amateurs. Why do you, why are you excited about riding with pros? I don't understand this. Like, I don't want to ride with with all these fast pros, I want to ride with people that are as fast as me. Like I don't get the appeal at all. So anyways, UCI, it's awesome. I watched pirates of the Caribbean the other night and it's like the East India trading company coming in and kicking out all the pirates. It's the same thing is happening here. So gravel privateers. Yeah. Cutler Beckett, the whole deal. Okay. So I do not um, like gravel racing. I know you don't like UCI and that's, I understand that. I, this is news to me. I didn't know you were, uh, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's fine. It just, it isn't unique to me. I don't, I don't see the unique it's pitched as being very unique, but it's not like road racers do well on road race stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mountain bikers do well on more mountain bikey stuff. Like, I don't know. It's fine. I, I'm, I like it. I'm glad that it's around. I'm glad that it gives us more events. I love the fact that riding gravel takes us away from traffic. That's mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I don't, the hype. I don't, not sure if I buy into the hype, you know? Sure. So but I think the UCI getting into it's good. That's my vote. They do a darn good job with world championships, man. Like look at mountain bike world championships. It's always so good. Look at, um, they pick awesome locations. Look at road world championships. I feel like they also do a great job. Um, so I think they'll do great with it. So, uh, Pete, are you racing the Legion crit? This is the big uh, question from Steven. Also known as crit world championships. Um, <laughs> which is the, uh, the Legion crit has a hundred thousand dollar prize purse for those ah, who that. are not in the know, um, which would be That's the crazy. biggest prize purse in the country, or which I think ever. is probably going to be split 50, 50, I would assume between men and yeah. women and, and $10,000 or I think $10,000 in premiums per race. So that's like, uh, 60 minutes. That's like $500 
a, I don't know, a minute or something that might be able to actually pay for the nutrition you take. In. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which kudos uh, to SRAM and Legion. It sounds yeah, like they're the sure. main ones putting this up. Awesome. Like yeah. more races and more opportunities for these athletes to be able to, uh, get well compensated. It's awesome. I, I think so. And, and I definitely agree that <clears throat> for everybody who's complaining, how many, uh, how many races do you put on? What is their prize purse? And, uh, are you, um, activating on it and getting people excited? And I'm always on board with more racing. And I think more career races in general is just be sweet to have a longer season instead of like our kind of heavy wham, bam, bam. Um, I, I put my hand up on the team. We'll see. I, there was a message going around, um, where they were assessing interest. And since I'm close, uh, that's like an hour and a half away. Yeah. An hour and a half away. Um, if I don't make the squad, then I'm, I'll definitely probably still go and, and hang out. Cause I'd like to see it. And I hope that it is the beginning of more races like this, but every once in a while there's a, who knows? So I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, and I'm going to try to race it. I've actually done a lot more racing this year. Uh, so I'm not faster, smarter, older, wiser, um, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so we'll see, but it, it sounds like a good race to, to see what it's like. Um, so I'm going to try is, uh, are there any rumors of bigger teams showing up than like, like we're talking like world tour teams that would show up or anything like that? The C the timing is strange. Uh, so I do not know, uh, the way I'm seeing the way I, what I would guess is there's some U S based pros that I bet will, if they can get the freedom from their big teams to do this as their off season, I bet, I bet we'll get some random stars that are not the normal people we see at races like this. Um, and then I bet with, with an entire year of COVID and then the long season or the kind of strange season this year, everybody's pretty, pretty burnt out. Um, I could tell at the end of the, I went to gateway and, um, it's just the, it's kind of like the end of the road season when you're watching like the Vuelta and half the guys just like instant gruppetto. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it definitely feels like there's a discrepancy between the guys who are still going and the people who are kind of tapering off like they've been going too hard. So it'll, it's another month and it's six weeks away. So that's a long time. Yeah. So we will find out. I am, I bet it's well attended, but not as competitive as some of the other races during the year. It's my guess. Yeah. Yeah. It would be really tough to beat Legion. I would figure. Yeah at this race, right? I mean, as it's proven all year, it just be so if they're, they're, they're hard to beat. They have a team built to be successful in crits and they do a darn good job of making it happen every single time. I, you know? I finally got close. Uh, we were leading out our sprinter and I was up, I, there's some video of me up in the Legion mixing up with the Legion train and hey. it's hard up there, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason it's, it's like, it's not, it's not easy to ride up close to them. Um, even if you're confident and fast and have the experience and all of that, it's still there better at that than most, almost everybody else. Uh, yeah. so it's, it's hard. Um, even if we get like, yeah, if we get like a loss in Craddock, cause I, he's decent, he's pretty, I think he's good at crits cause he mm -hmm. from Texas does like the driveway series, Yep. but even then it's just Lawson. Right. And, and even if he had like Howes and Lockie, I don't think that they can, I'm thinking of the other U S based riders on yeah. his team. Right. Like, they have a whole team built around it. I'm not sure who else could come on the U S side. And there's always Mr. Iman Lucas. I hope he comes back for it. That would be fun to see. Um, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, it'll be a good one. I, I kind of hope they stream it um, for everybody else too. That I think that's, yeah. that would be a real interesting. And it's a sh- super short course. Um, for those of you that remember the tour of California, like SAC um, circuits at the end of the Sacramento stage, yeah. it's the same course. So big wide boulevards, big trees. Um, but sh- like, I think it's a less than a mile course. So it's four corner. It'll be fast and open. And yeah, that, that kind of plays into Legion's hands as well. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Hey, they're putting the race on. It's theirs yep. to do. Um, okay. Uh, somebody says, can we do a group ride in Cape town before Cape Epic? Very possibly just stay in touch with us and, and go to Instagram and subscribe to trainer road. We'll also be doing podcasts from Cape Epic. Uh, Sean, one of our awesome copywriters here will be our podcast host and he'll be interviewing, uh, the different teams. So we'll have lots of stuff there. Uh, Matt says, uh, single best way to stretch your current five second PR to 10 seconds. We're talking sprint power. What would you guys say? Stretch it to six and then seven. (laughs) See where I'm going with this. (laughs) Yes, I do. Chad, I think he's talking about something that he could do that would technique (laughs) strength training. I don't know something probably stomps because you're you're still talking about an alactic effort, which is all PCR driven and mm-hmm. you know, onboard ATP. So the really quick burning stores and going from five seconds to 10 seconds is, is probably a reasonable get. I mean, going from 10 to 15 to 20, those are, those are pretty lofty mm-hmm. and they get really difficult, really fast, but going from five to 10 is probably, probably doable. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's just not that much of a discrepancy already. So merging those two, but I would suggest stomps. So, so basically big gear, slow to a crawl, dump it in the biggest gear that you can turn over and wind it up to 90 RPM, call it good, wait five minutes, do it again. But you want to increase recruitment. You want as much muscle on board as possible immediately in the, in the very short term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was, <clears throat> Chad took mine. I was going to say stomps. They, it's like lighting, <laughs> it's lighting the firework, right? Or where you want to fire every single thing you possibly can at the same time and get it going. And for those of you, I know some people have problems with stomps getting it up to that higher RPM. It's more important to start in a hard gear and only get up to 60 or 70 RPMs than it is to spin out the 80, 90, and 100 RPMs. So put mm-hmm. lean more of your effort into the first five and 10 seconds, and you'll be able to tell. And, and um, lastly, you kind of get free technique out of the stomp because uh, it's such a low RPM that you don't have to be as... Uh, specific with your timing, your sprint timing. I know we love talking about that, but puts um, it all in slow motion for you, puts it all in slow motion. And so you can just fully focus on exploding and trying to snap your crank arm off. Um, and like Chad says, definitely wait five minutes or 10 minutes in between. If you, if you Mm -hmm. don't feel like you're really exploding the same way, um, more rest is better. And it's definitely not going to diminish the training in any way. Um, and just lift, lift some weights in the off season and you'll be very impressed at how much your sprint power changes, even if it's a small amount, um, some squats and some deadlifts and you'll be, it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Watch the sprinting one-on-one video. <clears throat> we'll link to that below in the description. So you can see that with Pete putting out some awesome technique, Nate almost dying, uh, as Nate his chain dying. came off his chain ring. So <clears throat> good times. Okay. Uh, Matt says single, oh, forgive me. Elliot says, Pete, what size chain ring and cassette do you run for crits? Um, I run a 54 39 up front. Um, and I definitely have considered running a 54 42, uh, not for any real reason. I'm a lower RPM guy kind of in general. 
Um, and I like the higher, the bigger front chain ring, then I'm kind of more in the center of my cassette, not really in the center, but kind of more in line. And it, I think it shifts better and you're slightly better. I mean, we're talking very small uh, differences, but I like the way that feels. Um, and then I usually run 1128 most of the time and 1130 in the winter, um, just because you end up climbing things. Um, I would honestly, I I definitely considered running a 55 this year, not because I'm ultra strong, but again, because the chain line and I like the way like the 15, 14, 13 feels. Um, and that's, that seems, uh, and I don't really care about, I I'm heavy enough that I can pedal on the downhills too. So definitely at some courses like at Tulsa, I can pedal on the downhills when some people aren't pedaling. Um, and I, that, that definitely benefits me because I just have the gear. Mm-hmm. Can, can we address that really quickly since I'm doing everything I can? And a bag on crappy commentators that when you run a frig, a, a really big chain ring, a 55 doesn't mean you're going to turn over a 5511 or a 5510 as you're out on the course. It means you can maintain a more centered position on your cog set so that there's less but chain resistance. It, yes. What, it's not. Why is that, how is that still misunderstood? <laughs> it's not Felipe Ghana is so strong he needs a 60 tooth ring. It's because. Yeah, yeah. The gears he turns in the center of the cog set line up really well yep. with the straight chain. So then he needs to put the and right team, uh, chain ring behind it. His team cares about those details, whereas other teams will be like, yeah, you're fine. But his team, they care about every single detail. So they're going to look at that and say, for the average speed that you can maintain on this course, you're going to spend the majority of your time in these three spots. So how can we keep move that basically so it's in the middle of the cassette? Instead yeah, of it's the, it's the Dan Bigham differences. I mean, the guys who get really analytical about shaving hundreds of seconds in competitions where hundreds of seconds actually matter. Yep, exactly. Yeah, time trials, man, uh, the most. Okay, Trevor, if you must do lifting and trainer session in the evening after work, which one comes first? Depends hmm. on the. Yeah, totally depends on the bike and, workout. And and I yeah I would I would put preferential treatment on the bike workout if the bike workout is important, do that first. And then I would do way lighter gym work and I would do accessory gym work instead of your real strength session. And then if it's a lighter, easier bike work, I would still, honestly, most of the time I like it personally, I like it better to warm up with the bike, like super easy, <clears throat> 30 minutes or whatever, and then go real, real strength. Um, <clears throat> and I think that my body definitely recovers better personally lifting after riding rather than spinning it out um for whatever reason i don't know why i just unless it feels like i feel better going into the next session than if i rode afterwards for me mm. yep agreed if you and also i would i would wonder but this isn't rapid fire i would wonder trevor um do you have to do both yeah maybe you can maybe you can think through the schedule a bit to, so you can get more out of your bike training and just have yeah, less a lot stress of work to do just prior to bed <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep and Four hours, man. If you can, if you can sneak, if you can do your gym work at lunch and then ride at night, your life is going to be much easier. Um, and your training mm-hmm. will feel better and all of that things or vice versa. Like you could ride at lunch and lift it in the evening or in the morning. Um, separating them helps a ton. Separating them helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. David, uh, with your quick, quick release levers, do you keep them in line with the fork and chain stay or do you keep them swept back horizontal? Oh, this is this is a polarizing question. <laughs> it, it should be, but it's not because I. It kind of depends where I've set it. If it if it lines up with the fork, I'm 
I'm good. If it lines up in a horizontal manner, I'm good, but it does have to be one of those two. <laughs> no forward, no tusks on your no, shot. No, wait, definitely. It's <laughs> a good look, though. I'm gonna give a shot. It's a leading Steering edge, right? To the wind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think so. Personally, this is this may be totally manufactured in my head. <clears throat> I do straight back because if something falls and hits your quick release and it's straight up, it's going to pull it down. And so, like, if someone crashes into you in a crit, pulls mm. off your quick release, I. That is more um, disastrous than someone falling and turning your quick release down from being straight back, and it's more aerodynamic. Like it's it's twofold. Yes. It's less it's less risk, and it's faster. So why would you the up thing, man? I don't know. Oh. I yeah. sort of trust everybody less if they're they're uh, <laughs> quick releases. Don't ride don't ride on that wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, when they put them in line, like the goal is just to be in line with, sometimes they do the seat stay in the back. I'm just like, look, it doesn't look good. We're not hiding this thing. We can still see it dangling off the side. So we're we're not doing anybody any favors. Like, And with mountain biking, it's really important to not have it so that it is in a spot where it can get caught by branches and everything else. It's it's horizontal, parallel to the ground, right? And backward, not forward, no tusking going on. So yeah. Also- for those that don't know, a pro tip, you may be like, well, I don't have any choice because of my fork when I tighten it up and then I fold it up. It's just where it is. You can clock your through axles. So if you have a Fox one on the other side, that weird looking little dial with numbers on it, undo that little Allen key, rotate that, tighten it back up, and then you'll be able to make it so that it's in the right spot. Fox, I think recommends putting it in line with the fork going up, but you do you. And then on rock shocks, the way that you do it is you grab the through axle, you press the end in. It's basically it's spring loaded. You press that in and twist it, and that's how you reclock it, and then you can get them in. So pro tip: that way you don't have to feel like uh, your your situation is just unique and broken. You can adjust. So <clears throat> uh, saving lives over here. John John did that to me at the trailhead one ride, and it blew my mind. He's like, "What's your fork doing?" And I was like, "I don't know." And he's just like, "Here," I'm like, "Boop boop boop boop," and then. It's facing exactly where it needed to be. And I just remember uh, like just exploding. Uh, you got so much faster that day. I got so much faster that day. True friendship. Um, okay. Some Brando says, how long do each of you typically take off the bike after a full season of racing? Well, <clears throat> when I used to have full seasons of racing, um, I, I was pretty crappy at this because I would just transition to a different type of bike riding because I just like to be on the bike all the time. So it's kind of a year-round thing. But I do recognize the benefit in being off for a couple of weeks. So if I were coaching you, I would say two weeks, don't touch the bike. But for me, pretty much never. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely in the like two weeks to a month. And what I do is try to only do probably only mountain bike rides and only for fun. And I definitely have no bike computer during that month. Um, mm. uh, and like commute... Like I like riding my bike to the bakery or to the coffee shop. And so I'm still getting the satisfaction of riding a bike in, but no, there's no efforts. There's no intention. Mm-hmm. It's just mode of transport and enjoy your life a little bit. Yeah. Two weeks of no training for me. Um, I'll allow myself to ride bikes, but those bike rides are super short and it's usually like up at the bike park or something. Yeah. And we're doing dirt jumps and silly stuff like that or shuttling fun trails going down. But even then that will be one or two, maybe that would be it. So 
Um, okay. Next one. Somebody says favorite current pro and ex pro road racers. Hmm. Uh, so many, I don't have any. Man, I, 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 this isn't, maybe it's not current, but I sure like 2020 Mark Hershey. Yeah. I missed that. <clears throat> he did win recently, but I, man, he was awesome to watch in that tour. Um, it's, it's hard um, not to recognize and it's probably tired, but the wow, Van Art, Matthew Vanderpool, Tom Pitcock. I mean, those guys across disciplines yeah. are endlessly exciting and they're, they're not just strong. They're, they're so good and they're so fun to watch and they're graceful and they're aggressive and it, pick any of those mm-hmm. three guys. And, and that's an easy, an easy get. Uh, as far as next pros, I'm going to have to I think like, on that. Yeah. The new generation of riders I think is pretty exciting. And I like that they're all competitive enough that you can't, uh, you don't mm-hmm. get to pick like a, an outstanding favorite. Um, X X pros. I mean, I, I grew up on the, uh, Kenshlara Boonen battles. And so like, that was just so enjoyable yeah. to me. And like, that's what that was in my formative years of like, learning about cycling. So I don't know that real head to head rivalry is something that like, I feel like doesn't, I don't know, Matt, Vanderpool and, and Van are, are close, but it's, it doesn't feel the same, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I really, really, really enjoyed that kind of generation of just mono a mono. Yeah. Uh, racing. X pro Tom Bonin. Tom yeah. Bonin for yeah, me. 100%. With, the, with the pros though, it comes back to how they are off the bike. I think that's what makes it for me because you can watch them race bikes mm-hmm. and a lot of riders are impressive on that level. But when you meet them afterwards, like met Miguel Indurain, Oscar Pereiro, Danny Pate, these are all really humble, sociable guys. And that drastically influences where, where I place them in my heart. And those are the guys that I'm fascinated with how they can be that good on the bike, but that humble about their accomplishments. Mm. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And if I had to pick a current one, uh, the one I like watching the most is Vanderpool because it's always just like, he breaks rules. I don't get how he does what he does. Like he shouldn't be able to be successful from the positions he finds himself in. But I think my heart says Weltman or he's, uh, and forgive yeah. my terrible, uh, pronunciation, everyone, but, um, he's just incredible. So, uh, okay. Next one, Pete, what is your favorite beard product? Oh, uh, Man, um, I use a lot of products from Lush, which is like a packaging-free, multidisciplinary hair, body, toothpaste, you name it. Um, Mm -hmm. They have a really good, uh, I think it's called R&B or Revive or something like that. And it's it's for hair and you can definitely use it in your beard. that's what I would go with that. And it smells very good. Uh, that's generally the thing that, um, it, like, I don't know, it works, works super well, lasts forever. It's a little expensive, but I'm pretty sure mine lasts like a year. So hmm. uh, it's good smelling it. stuff too, that lush stuff. But if you send your fiance into the store and she asks you, do you want anything? And you say bar soap, cool. And she brings you an exfoliating bar. 
This is very, very coarse business, not super nice to the delicate parts. I don't, I don't have the best association with Lust products. They do smell really good, but they're also really painful. Uh, uh, good stuff. I'm glad that we had your 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 choice or your input to chat. That's good. Yeah. Um, okay. I have a couple rapid fire ones for Pete since the. I hope that we'll be able to have Pete on the podcast occasionally at some point in the future, but just the same, I have a few. Um, Pete, what's your most memorable race that you've done? Um, the most memorable race I've ever done. Um, in 2015, I was rolling pretty well, and I got off the front of the Boise Twilight, and United Healthcare was there. Um, and for whatever I, I've was definitely feeling pretty good. And this is back when United Healthcare was more like Legion. And so they would just ride mm-hmm. the front. And um, th- it was kind of the same thing where most of the time, most breaks would last a lap or two. And um, for whatever reason, uh, I just had super good legs. And and I remember attacking probably like 15 minutes in or 20 minutes in and thinking, you know, whatever, we're just rolling the dice. You want, you want to make them tired. And they gave me, for whatever reason, they gave me a little bit of a leash. And I was like, well, someone will come up and nobody came up. And so it was just me, like uh, 30 seconds off the front of Boise for, I think it was like 40 minutes or something. It was a wow. very, very long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, I don't know. I just remember uh, I've never been able to do anything. I've never been able to race like I wanted to race. And that was the first time where I definitely... Um, I was able to race and feel like the energy of the crowd and, and look back and, Mm. you know, pick my pace and things like that. And then, um, that was, that's the first big race I ever felt like I belonged and did something. And so that was super cool. Um, and then, uh, kind of in the same vein, the, like the result I'm still proud of is at the Dana point grand prix when it was a, um, PRT race, UHD, again, all the pros were there and, um, I don't know. I, again, just everything felt really right. And the course suited me. It was a little more roller coastery. And a group of five got off the front with like uh, Carl Menzies and like all the hammers of of the yesteryear. And I remember being like, well, I missed the break. I'll just have to get up there. And uh, Daniel Holloway and I were both trying to like get off the front and get back up. And they wouldn't let, wouldn't let Danny go, but they let me go. And I just somehow rode across and then I got to the break with three or four laps left and I was thinking, man, they're going so easy. I better just, I bet I can just jump them. And so I remember Dave Toll announcing and saying, I I just caught a couple laps before. And then with two to go, I just haymakered them through the start finish line. And Dave Toll was like, Oh my God, Pete, Pete is attacking them. Like, what is he doing? And then of course they <laughs> caught me and uh, everybody beat me in the sprint, but um, <laughs> it was, it was cool to try. Um, no, I, I really, I definitely, um, I have so many good memories and even just random little ones, like even, uh, small, uh, like land park races or Livermore mm-hmm. crits or, uh, riding, um, Tuesday nights. I, I, it's all fun. And I think that's, what's kind of crazy is everything is pretty enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. and so when you really think about all your favorite memories, they're just kind of dripped in so that it's always about what you're doing and who you're with and, and how you, how much fun you're having. What race do you look forward to the most every year on your calendar? Oh, the first one, <laughs> no matter what, uh, 
as you guys know, like I thrive on racing. I, I'm a, I'm decent at training, but I train really well because I like to race and I'll race no matter what the fitness, no matter mm-hmm. how it looks. Um, I just really, really enjoy racing. And so definitely the first race, race of the season is always, that's the longest stretch where you have nothing going on. There's nothing else to focus on other than like February or <laughs> January 28th. It's going to be 45 degrees and raining in Sacramento and yeah. That's what we're doing. It's going to be the best race of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, plans for next year. Now that, uh, team cliff bar racing is in its final year. Um, privateer so, Pete, uh, possibly. Um, I think <laughs> there's, there's a couple things floating around. There's a couple guys on the team that, um, we all like each other and like spending time and like racing, um, that they're, we're trying to work some magic, and actually, uh, I can't give any spoilers, but we'll just say a fan of the team that we interact with fairly regularly um, was so disappointed that he said, "Let me see what I can do." Um, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna have a meeting. I think actually this it's the twenty third, so next week, um, and kind of decide what what the if there is going to be a team next year, what it's going to look like, and who's going to be on it. Um, it's probably going to be some scaled down, uh, version, but I'm going to, I'm definitely going to probably do less USA crits. Um, sure. it's a just lot a lot of, plate. yeah, it's just a lot. Um, but I still love racing locally and I'm going to try to race a little more masters races and kind of dabble more in more mountain, but be more well-rounded as a cyclist. So more mountain bike sure. races, some enduros, maybe some, probably not gravel. Sorry guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Let's get into some listener questions. This one's from Simon says, from what I understand, nutrition is a large part of becoming a faster cyclist. However, from what I've seen, you've only covered nutrition on the bike and ride afterwards, uh, uh, that we've covered more than that, but just the same, uh, happy to answer this one, Simon. And by the way, if you're listening right now, you can submit your questions at trainerroadcom slash podcast. That's where the deep dives came from. That's where these questions are coming from. <clears throat> and any question you have, go ahead and submit it there. He says, how important is what you eat whenever you eat? And what influence does it have, if any, on your performance and training? Is there anything specific cyclists should be eating and how efficient increasing your performance would seeing a nutritionist be? And would it be better to talk to a sport nutritionist compared to a regular nutritionist? Tons of questions in there that basically answer every nutrition question you could have about bike, uh, about cycling all in one, uh, Pete, uh, seeing as how you're, you are our resident, uh, nutritionist here this was your degree of or your area of study where do you want to start uh i think it's it's kind of interesting uh what he did is he went down the rabbit hole and had more and more specific questions and i think that's that's kind of what everybody um everybody's having this problem where the more information we have the feel like we can make better decisions over and over and we get deeper into the rabbit hole and make a better decision and so on and so forth and so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna mess it all up and go completely as far back as I can. And we'll just talk really basically about kind of quality of food and timing. Um, because technically, I mean, Chad actually touched a little bit on glycolysis and and how that works. And I think you guys are even going to talk about it next week a little more. So I, I think we're going to, we're going to go back to kind of regular, um, how we, how this affects us and how this affects you, the way you should think about nutrition and the timing that you're doing. Um, and so what I think everybody could work on as a general rule and us included is, 
um, start start assessing the quality of the nutrition that you're taking in, uh, because as soon as you address the quality, that's going to have a different effect on the timing. So you can't you can't have specific timing when the when the quality and the types of foods vary so much, because you're going to actually marry timing to the quality and the kind of type of food that you're going to eat beforehand. Um, and so that's what I think everybody needs to start with finding a quality meal that works really well for them, either pre-training or racing. Um, and for a lot of people, uh, depending on how your stomach handles it, basic is usually a little more, uh, it's easier to make, it's easier to stomach and it's easier to rely upon and get your body trained. Um, and so I would say the, the example that just happened is we were in, we were at the gateway cup in Missouri and, um, you race at kind of varying different times. It was like 9 PM, uh, 6 PM, 5 PM, 4. Um, but what we had is we had a very, very small Airbnb kitchen, um, that, that is hard to cook. And there's not, uh, there's, for example, there's not things like olive oil in the cabinet. Um, and so you pour the peanut butter oil off of your, uh, stir peanut butter <laughs> into the pan so that like, <laughs> things don't stick. Um, but that's a separate story. Uh, I would say, so what, what we did is we picked something that was, that kind of jived with all of us and then all, so there's four racers staying in the house and we all ate slightly different times and we all ate slightly different quantities and we all ate slightly different, um, kind of, mm, differing meals throughout the day. And so that's what I was thinking about when we were actually, we kind of talked about this specific scenario right before that race. And so I was kind of paying attention over and over. And so we had four different riders who were all racing the same race. We're all slightly more or less crit racers. Um, but we all ate different breakfasts at different times that we thought were more, more nutritionally valued to us. And so, but everybody ate super nutrient dense quality foods. And I'll say that over and over. And I think if everybody reminds themselves that quality and nutrient density kind of change the way your body feels and change the way your, your body looks and changes your body composition, changes your performance. It's like the single smallest thing you can do. And I know it costs more money and I know it takes more like brain power to start picking those things. But, uh, I, like we always say, start with one thing, like get, get some quality oatmeal. Um, that's a little more nutrient dense that ha kind of has a, a gamut of grains or seeds or something like that and start with the smallest little bit. And I guarantee if you start getting the snowball rolling, the quality food thing gets easier and easier and easier. And once you start with quality, um, it's going to impact the rest of your nutrient intake throughout the day. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of the guys did yogurt and granola and fruit um, to start the day. And again, some ate kind of right when they got up, some ate... Um, before our ride, like timing before our morning spin, and then some ate more directly after the morning spin. Um, but a, the reason I'm touching on that is because even though we all ate breakfast, we all ate at different times. And then we timed that, that kind of played into the way we ate food before the race. So before the race, we made veggies and rice more or less. Um, we do have a recipe. Um, yeah. Maxine can put it up on screen. And then if you're watching on YouTube, you can screenshot this and save it. Um, it's a, it's an easy recipe. I call it Pete's easy bowl recipe. Um, cause you can just, uh, put everything into a bowl and then add on uh, some, some of the things he talks about here, probably easier to just let them screenshot it and check it out there, Pete. Right. Uh, rather yeah. than 
yeah, read I, through. I, I think I think what I can do is explain a super easy. Um, but it's probably half rice, half veggies. Um, the the seasoning is person dependent. Some of us just use soy sauce. Some of us use like a gen, uh, sesame ginger sauce. But again, it's the idea is there's a lot of nutrient density, um, but it's not too heavy on your stomach. And we would eat, I ate three hours and three and a half hours before every race. Um, and I ate quite a lot, um, where some guys ate closer to the race and ate slightly less. Um, but everybody was eating the same thing. And that wind, that timing window that I would say for us was between four and two and a half hours. Um, and what that means is it's just as much trial and tribulation on your part, where if you have all these training opportunities, you can practice with the type of food you're going to eat, the quality of the food, and then based on your intensity and and how the race is going to go. So there's kind of three things you have to figure out. And so that's why, um, it was laughable that we're all doing the same thing. We're all the same type of riders more or less. And we're still, everybody is, uh, still tuned kind of specifically. Um, Mm -hmm. and some riders did more rice and less veggies because they were just less adept at handling. Mm -hmm. I think we lost Pete. Hopefully a higher fiber thing for Pete's back. (laughs) I made it just back up one sentence. Uh, so anyways, uh, so the, the type of, or the amount of rice to the amount of veggies was different per rider based on how adept they were at handling veggie intake. Um, and we cooked, we cooked them all quite a lot. Um, I will say so that kind of break it down as much as possible. Um, and what that does is it, it allows you to get a lot more nutrients and kind of stomach more palatability, um, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, um, it's funny, Simon. I know I didn't really answer any of the questions. Let's answer it. We can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. He says, uh, yeah. So he says, how important is what you eat whenever you eat? Um, so Pete just went out and talks about timing. It's individual. You'll find it, but probably sometime between two to four and a half hours is likely what you'll see. What influence does it have, if any, on your performance or training? It absolutely has an influence on it. Um, prior to training, you're going to want to eat more carb dense. Uh, thereafter, uh, you likely won't need that. That's just a common practice. Is there anything specific cyclists should be eating and how beneficial at increasing your performance? And actually we'll cover the nutritionist thing and something or nutritionist thing separately, but is there anything specific cyclists should be eating? Cyclists should not feel differently than another sort of endurance athlete, but endurance athletes in general and everybody in general benefits from high density of my, of, of nutrients of a diverse nutrient profile as well. And making sure that you're getting yourself enough carbohydrate, enough protein to be able to fuel training and recover from training. And most cases fats pretty taken care of. So eat veggies, eat a variety, and then make sure that you're giving your body enough fuel or kind of like the, the ways to answer that one. Pete's internet's uh, acting up. So he may not be able to chime in on this one, but Pete, what do you say about nutritionists? His question of, is seeing a nutritionist beneficial or not? Oh, Pete's audio is gone. Hopefully we can get it back. Pete might have to rejoin into the podcast recording because his might be out. I'm going to go through and talk about Pete's notes on this one though, while Pete ends up uh, addressing this one. So Pete put down on some notes on this, that if you're asking the question of whether it's worth it to see a nutritionist or not, it's probably worth exploring that for sure. Um, but there are differences between nutritionists and actual sports nutritionists. I, I can speak like from firsthand experience with this one. I don't know if you can too, Chad, but 
I have visited or I've, I've worked with different nutritionists and then I've worked with sports nutritionists and the experience is profoundly different. Um, and, uh, Yes, it was also beneficial for me to see a nutritionist just because I felt supported in a handful of things that I had questions on. Um, they were able to provide some good guidance. I don't know if you'd have any further insight on that, Chad. No, just that <clears throat> there, there has been really apparent to me the difference between just a nutritionist and a sport nutritionist. And I've even had good luck with just nutritionists, which are still very educated, but who are athletes. So, mm -hmm. so if they have an athletic background and they understand and they're, they're in the I'll use that term they're they can relate they they know yep. exactly what we're facing they've done all the trials and tribulations that Pete mentioned so it it is a bit of a suck it and see you know you know throw it at the wall see what sticks whatever whatever metaphor yep. but the the idea being if they have an athletic basis for the recommendations they're making to you i give that a bit more credence absolutely pete you're back, but are you really back? Let's see if uh, we get your audio. He's working on it now. Hopefully we can get it sorted soon. Um, okay. So we're going to go into the next question from Andy. He says, morning all, I've been using Trainer Road since it was free and obviously enjoy it. I'm not sure it was ever free. Um, right, Chad? Like even maybe he got in in the beta test phase very early prior Perhaps. to, but I don't think it was never free. It was, so. it was real cheap in the beginning, but I don't think it was yes. ever free. Yeah. Never free. So, um, but just the same, Andy, thank you. Uh, happy to have you with us here. Uh, once again, if you want to give trainer road a shot, seven day free trial, you can go and try it zero obligation and get adaptive training already. And he says, I've always struggled getting the right calorie balance to lose some weight and still perform and recover well. So how do I discern between a week where I'm not eating enough to recover versus a productive training week that pushes me to improve? I'm on the last week before recovery week and this week and last, I've been really struggling with the workouts. He says, thanks all and great work. Um, he says, by the way, I met a few of you, including Jonathan, when I managed to sneak into the last industry day at Interbike a handful of years ago. And you're all as nice as you are on the podcast. Oh, Andy, thank you. That's kind of you to say. And uh, just thank you so much for being with us for so long. So uh, Pete, how are you? Let's do a systems check. You, you, you good? How do, how do I sound? You sound good. Quiet, but good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Here, let me uh, yeah. readjust. Hey. Oh man, Much he's better? back. Yeah. All right, Looks cool. great. Sounds great. Yeah. So, so Pete, this whole like situation of wondering, okay, recovery week or deload week versus load week. Like, how do I balance this all out? If you think about that way, it's a constant struggle, right? Mm -hmm. What suggestions yeah. would you have for an athlete in this scenario? Uh, I, we, I think we had a really good discussion when we were talking about this and I think your body doesn't know whether it's load week or deload week. Uh, it takes a long time for your body to figure out what's going on because it's dealing on the inputs that you're putting in and it takes a couple days of deloading for your body to start adapting and start changing the way it's, it's mm -hmm. prioritizing it's, um, uh, everything it's doing. And so, um, one of the very important things is it your body likes to like the homeostasis part of your body really enjoys that you eat the same quality food all the time. And it it's counting on that food all the time. Um, and to do all of the changes and to get faster and all the performance increases are all based upon what you're putting in your body. And so on a, on a deload week, especially your body actually has extra energy to kind of rebuild and recover. And so it seems to me like the absolute worst time I could, come up with to 
restrict any sort of intake at all, period. Um, and I would it's say- It's working hard, you, even though you're not working. It's finally able to actually adapt and make improvements. Exactly. So it's it kind of steps up and it's it's going to overcome all of the load that you've put into it. Um, but if you kind of remove that part of the equation from a deload week that you actually want to fuel your recovery just as much as you want to fuel your work, then that will change the way that your body um, capitalizes on the recovery weeks and the deload weeks. Um, and so kind of think about your intake as a rolling time period where you're always fueling things as well as you possibly can for like seven days average or two weeks average or a whole training phase average where you want to always fuel exactly as well as you possibly can, no matter what. And then your body will do the most with what it can. And, um, I think there's some, there's a misconception of about body composition and fueling. Um, as long as you're fueling with quality foods and doing the work, your body composition will adapt to be the best, uh, the best type of composition for what you're doing and the work you're doing and the food you're eating. Um, and almost always it's in a positive direction for you. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the pointy end of things. But I think for everybody fuel your recover, like it's really basic fuel your recovery the same way you fuel the work and your body will reward you with greater fitness, um, coming out of that, that rest period. I try There's to look two, at it as oh, yeah. dur during the loading weeks, you're fueling the training and during the deload weeks, you basically fuel the adaptation. Yeah. yeah. There's two thoughts that come to mind with that. When Pete, you said, as long as you're focusing on quality first, then your body composition is going to optimize. And the reason that's true, because I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, well, yeah, but if I eat way too much, if you're focusing on quality, it's really hard to eat too many vegetables, too many, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Too many fruits, too many high, it's, it's hard. Like, it's your hard. body, it's, there's a ton of fiber in that food in a lot of cases too. Um, so, you know, it's going to be filling and it's going to be tough to be able to eat too much of it. So that is a good way to do it. Now it's really easy to eat too much when you're eating low quality food, stuff that mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of high nutrient value. That's really easy to just take in a ton of it and your body can't really do much with it. So in many cases, it doesn't help body composition, uh, that's favorable to, toward performance. So it's really about quality first, like Pete's been saying. Pete, you have kind of an interesting idea on this though. Like what, cause so let's say you're looking at your caloric demands and then you're looking at your calories and you're measuring your, your calories, doing all that stuff. Um, speaking from personal experience, things I do, you're doing all that. And then you're also measuring your weight every day on the scale. It is so hard when you have a day where you are heavier than you anticipated being according to what that scale said to not let that affect your nutritional decisions later on in that day. And in most cases, if you'd end up, and I mean, I think basically in every case, as long as once again, you're keeping quality first, if you deprive yourself, it's going to compromise not only your workout quality, it's going to compromise your sleep, your mood, your productivity throughout the day, everything else. But when that scale says, shows a lower or shows a higher number than you expected, it's so hard not to do that, right? How do we, what's your idea on how to break that? <laughs> so uh, laughably, I, I was been up in uh, Seattle for, for a little bit and I came back and stepped on the scale this morning, just like I do every morning. And I knew I was dehydrated. So I was expecting something and I got a different number than I was expecting, which was unsatisfying. Uh, <laughs> and no matter what, even though I try to preach this fairly regularly, I, it still tweaked my brain. And so this morning 
uh, I set off on a different path than I would have if I wouldn't have stepped on the scale, no matter what. Um, mm. And so the idea behind this is you fluctuate so much day to day and uh, afternoon to morning and uh, depending on what you did, how, how much training you did the day before, how your fueling was, how your hydration was, all these things that are so um, that change so much about the way you weigh. And especially if you're weighing at 6 a.m. versus 8 a.m., post bathroom, pre bathroom, all these, all of these things. So what you really need is you need a scale that has a rolling seven day average and it always just recomputes what your current value, your current value of weight and then shows your actual rolling seven day average because then you won't be able to see the kind of minute fluctuations that change your mentality on the day and the change like your overall satisfaction with you as a human, uh, yes. as a, yes. at a really basic level. And so what you can do is you could choose to see a trend or not see a trend, right? Like it honestly, for some people, it doesn't matter. You, trending is not that important. It's more important to regularly step on the scale and see what's happening. Um, but if you could have a seven day rolling average of your weight or maybe a two week rolling average or something like that, um, and you never see a specific value for what you weigh today, but you have a, you have 14 values that get averaged on a rolling basis. I think that would fix a lot of the problems with people's uh, daily weighing, but it would still encourage people to weigh on a daily basis, which I do think is valuable in, in a sense. But those daily snapshots are about as useless as any snapshot. Any any yep. single point in time does not tell you that much. So I think this is the best idea to just display the average because you talk about how it affects your mindset, but how does it affect your nutrition that day? I think you mentioned this yeah. earlier too. It doesn't matter what you put yourself through the weekend. If you hop on the scale on Monday and you're two pounds up and be it known, those daily fluctuations are pr primarily water. You can't mm -hmm. change things about your body rapidly other than water. So whether it's through glycogen depletion or dehydration or voiding, not voiding, it's largely going to be water. So it really doesn't tell you anything anyway, but you see that number, it's a little higher than usual. And it doesn't matter what you've just been through, what you have planned that day, you're going to modify your diet a bit. It's not assumed, but a lot of people will. And then mm -hmm. what if the number's a little lower? It's like, oh, I'm trending the right way. I'm going to be a little more indulgent today, which can totally fly yeah. in the face of the momentum you had coming into that day because you get this one little blip on, on your radar that tells you really nothing. Yeah. And in many cases, those indulgences, uh, managing those or having like an outlet for those effectively, like, uh, it, it, in the endurance diet, it's a book that we've talked about a ton on this podcast, but uh, the whole concept of like, don't dare allow yourself to indulge at all usually ends up causing athletes to actually have worse problems with managing that. Right. And if you were looking at that scale and trying to decide when you were going to do an indulgence as a reward for a good day, that's a really tough psychology to manage uh, and to keep up with. Whereas this seven day rolling average thing, I think is brilliant because it would stop us from doing that and hopefully allow us uh, more inner peace with just pursuing quality rather than trying to mm -hmm. adjust the quantity constantly, you know, uh, that would be hugely beneficial. I'm sure a lot of people are listening. So, so give me the invest button, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> I slam well, it down. I want, and I want in. I'll buy it. Uh, yeah. well, the, so the other thing that people can do the same, there's the same benefit on the other side of the coin, where if you track your macros and your calories on a rolling seven day average, indulgences very minorly tweak what's going mm -hmm. on. But if mm -hmm. you're showing your daily macros and your daily intake, indulgences seem to change the way you feel and the same change the way you're 
your snapshot looks on the day. So if you can marry kind of a rolling seven day nutrient intake and a rolling seven day weight, like you'll be able to see a much better correlation between what you're doing and how you're feeling and what's going on without kind of the minor blips and um, mm-hmm. changes in how you how you're interpreting the data that day. Um, so yeah, let's who wants uh, Chad, will you um, you can be a scale company now, right? Sure. Chad will be the seed investor. Yeah, seed yeah. round right now for Pete. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's good. I'm in on the ground floor. And I'm sure if you're listening to this and your scale does this, uh, we do think some scales already do this. Um, but let us know which ones so then we can share that with people and then mm-hmm. uh people can get that. So um, but in all reality, Pete, I still invest. Um okay. okay. Some live questions. If you have any, get them in. We're just gonna spend a few minutes on this. Uh, first one is from Malte. I don't know if that's how you pronounce your name. I apologize uh, for mispronouncing it because I likely did. It says, can we have one workout in the library that Pete designs as a farewell? Oh, that's a good idea. Uh, John and I designed a lot of workouts. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Boy, <laughs> did we. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, between the three of us, there have been a yeah. lot of workout workouts you a, created. You need a signature workout though. Yeah. 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 Um, the one I, the one that caught my eye recently that I really want to do at some point in time is called Graveyard, um, and it's like a, <laughs> it's like an anaerobic like eighteen point one or something. Um, oh boy! So maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to make a um, like a, a doable version of that workout. Uh, I think it's Tabata like repeats. So it, it's it's uh, are they real Tabatas? They might be real Tabatas, like two hundred and ten percent of of FTP or something. They're awful. I think I made it. Um, like three and a half minutes into the first. Yeah, those setup. are those are tough because Tabatas are supposed to be all out effort. So I have to put a number on what all out is, and obviously that's not going to carry across every rider. Sure, uh, that's, uh, that's why you flip it into resistance mode. Then you can get right. it to oh, whatever yeah, yeah. you want. Right? Exactly. Do everything. Yeah, yeah. Pete, let's work on this. Let's see if we okay. can make it happen. Um, Pete has a lot of things on this plate here in the final final days, but just the same. So, okay, uh, has Pete ever been a track cyclist? If not, why not? Yeah, I need, I, it's on my list. Um, I would really like to do, um, more track cycling. We have to go to San Jose is the closest one right now, unless TR builds a velodrome. That's the why not. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's, it's on the list. And like I said earlier, I'm going to try to do more disciplines. Like I just love cycling and I think doing more different types would be really fun. And it's definitely Mm -hmm. on the list. I want to, I want some flying 200s in me and see what happens. That'd be cool. Okay. If you could only do one type of one hour workout three times a week, would you rather do one hour of three to five minute VO2 max intervals oh. or max sustained? Uh, he mentioned steady sweet spot power for an hour. Hmm. I, I definitely veer toward the higher end of things. It's typically going to be more productive, especially when you only want to spend three hours a week on the bike. In fact, I'd trim it down to more like 20 to 25 minutes and just do 30 second sprints with four and a half minute recoveries in between. They're crazy productive for the amount of time you have to invest. Mm, yeah. You broke the rules of the question, Chad, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, isn't either or. I yeah. Like Neither. <laughs> Let me tell you what I'd rather do. <laughs> uh, I've just, this year I've done so many five minute V2 intervals, like so many of them that I, I, we, we need, we're taking a break. Like we need some distance from each other. So it's hard for me to pick that one. Um, I also really do like uh sweet spot work. It's productive. Um, I could do it and uh, very consistently. I used to suck at it. 
And then uh, I gave myself a lot of time to work at it, started fueling my workouts appropriately and changed my mindset with it. Now I love it. I think I'd probably pick sweet spot right now, but ask me in January and it'll be VO2. Yeah. Yeah. Pete? I'm going to change the rules like Chad and I'm going to do three different <laughs> one hour workouts. Um, I really don't like either sweet spot or VO2. Like both yeah. are low on my list of, of things I enjoy doing. Um, it's how you so, race too. You don't yeah. do sweet spot or VO2. Nope. Pete does Bad. like low tempo or Z2 when he's racing or it's anaerobic and you cannot hold on and it's impossible. Yeah. So yeah, it's the perfect it way to live. <laughs> Zero or hero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. All gas, no breaks. Um, all right. Then next one, any update on when outdoor or non-structured outside workouts will be counted into adaptive training. Um, so we're working on that constantly. It's a really complex problem to solve, but we have really, really awesome and smart and really skilled people working on it, which is really cool. Uh, so it's in constant development. This sort of thing does take time because we have to work on, uh, you know, we're dealing with machine learning and we're dealing with uh, something that has to learn truly uh, over time. So that takes time. That said, right now with structured outside workouts, it works. Uh, after your outside workout, it'll ask you how we did, how you did, um, and then from that, we'll be able to uh, get all the information we need to give you credit for the work you've done and move you forward and suggest the right workouts for the next one. Um, so it is, it is, it is coming and we have teams or a team actively working on it, but no ETA that stuff is, uh, really tough to pin anything down on in terms of when it would come, but we're working mm -hmm. on it. So cool. That's it for this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, everybody on the podcast. Once again, rate and share the podcast on YouTube, Give this video, a thumbs up and share it with your friends. If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, why not? We have videos posted basically every single day, a really helpful stuff, whether it's podcast content, race analysis content, tons of stuff. It's always on there. And also you can go to our blog. We have fantastic team of copywriters that are always putting out great articles and you can check that out and sign up for trainer road for free seven days. You can go and give it a shot. Just go to trainerroad.com, no obligation. Uh, and if you have any questions throughout the seven day period, you can just reach out to our customer support team. They're awesome. They're there to answer any questions you have. So Pete, thank you. So much for everything that you've brought to us here at Trainer Road. Um, uh, we would absolutely not be where we are today without you. You've raised our game in terms of our cycling knowledge, but you've also raised our game in terms of uh, you bring something very unique to a team. Uh, togetherness, you always make everybody get together easily, and that's elevated everybody else's game. Uh, you're just you're just awesome. So we're gonna miss you, and thanks so much. Yeah, we'll yeah. miss you, buddy. Yeah, I, I love I, I love everybody here. I love all of, all the time I've spent here. Um, there's I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, it's it's amazing, and and I can't wait to see uh, what what's uh, unfolding here at TR and and how that's going to change the world and make people faster. So I'm I'm really really happy to have been part of it. It's it feels like I said it's been a rough couple of weeks, but it's it's um, I'm glad to have spent it with you guys for sure. Thanks, Pete. Uh, thanks so much. All right, everybody tune in next week. You can submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And we look forward to seeing you then take care. Bye, Bye guys. Everybody.